p.m. And I guess I will call to order the workshop for this evening that's going to be put on by Dr. Fulton. And I think that's all I have to do to introduce us to the workshop. So there you go, Dr. Fulton. Okay, thank you very much. Well, uh, thank you for uh, starting early this evening so we can go through some important information that is foundational to our strategic planning work. And the presentation that you hear, you'll hear on the update later tonight. <clears throat> we have with us tonight, uh, Mr. Rob Schwartz, who is, uh, was involved in putting together our enrollment projections. Enrollment projections are important for a couple of reasons. First of all, allows you to look a minimum of five years and even further out at times to understand what building enrollments might be. That in turn allows you to take a look at your building capacities to uh, better understand what uh, you might need to do with your facilities. And it, of course, it allows for instructional programming as well. So without further ado, I'm going to I'm going to turn it over to Rob and let him kind of walk you through what he learned when he did our enrollment projections. All right, good evening, Rob Schwartz here. Um, hopefully my audio and sound and soon to be screen all come in really nicely. So give me a second to get the screen rolling. All right, so tonight um, we set my stopwatch. I have 15 minutes in which to talk to you. The presentation analysis that you received is probably about 90 pages. So clearly we would not be able to go over all 90 pages um, in 15 minutes. So really the scope of this meeting is to introduce you to our analysis, introduce you to some of the concepts and terms that went into our analysis, and then allow you some time tonight to provide some questions, maybe conversation points. And if we have to get back to some things later, we most assuredly be able to do that. So the way I'm going to break this presentation um, out will be in some general categories of enrollment demographics, a little bit about developments, the enrollment projections, and then moving forward. But I did want to take some time to introduce myself and a little bit about our team. Um, Rob Schwartz, I'm the owner of the company. I actually went to school at Rose Hill Elementary and for those of you who are old timers, Hillcrest Junior High. So I'm somewhat familiar with uh, the Shawnee Mission School District uh, being a product through K through eight. When I was going into ninth grade, my parents wanted land. So we moved out west to DeSoto. So still have a lot of connection to your district. What you'll see in these next two pages is a little bit more information about our company. I founded it in 2003. Um, my past, I've been a city planner, a county planner, um, had 14 years in the United States Army in various capacities, also was an administrator uh, with the school district to the south. And uh, again, we've been running this business with school district planning uh, for the last 17 years. We have three different areas that we focus on with the company. Myself as the owner, I'm a planner, graduated from the University of Kansas, that's my mug here. Of, Jayhawk, so sorry if you're a K-State fan. Um, we also have educators involved in our process, but more importantly on this project is our analysts. And so Tyler and Brandon, um, they're the people that helps put together a lot of the analysis and the maps, and more specifically, Brandon, he did the, the greater share of the work. Uh, this map here is a visual 
of where we do work, and we do work all through the Midwest. Um, a lot of the neighboring districts, we do a lot of work with them as well. So enough about um, RSP. One of that is an introduction that you understand who we are, who we've worked with, and some of our skill sets that went into this analysis. In this presentation, um, I'm always going to refer you back to pages. So if you want to understand expectations, this page five helps you understand that. Um, we put together a lot of information, and I do want to take a moment here on page six. The ability to do this analysis required a lot of us uh, from different places, different entities to give us information. So this is really a short list of the cities, um, obviously the county, but we also received information from the Census Bureau, ESRI, which is our mapping software, really a lot of specific information that hopefully when you see the visuals, they really start to make sense. So a little bit about your district, if we look at this from that 100,000 foot perspective. So there's three things that we've broken out for you to take in mind as you think through this presentation. The first is about projections, where we show you to be stable and slight decrease. And that will make sense as I show you some slides um, here in the next few minutes. We've broken that out so you can see where those changes occur. And so if we look at the district over the next five years, we think you'll be about 200 students fewer um, as we get out to 24, 25. The bulk of that decrease is happening at the elementary and middle school grades. You'll notice that the high school, we have you increasing. So this is kind of a snake in a pig in the snake effect. We'll talk about that when I get to a particular slide. One thing with the capacity, um, we do know with some of the recursory uh, analysis that we've helped the district start to put together for capacity is to believe we know Briarwood is a building that we have more than 500 students, in fact, closer to 650 students. Um, that's going to be a building that we know there's some capacity pressures um, that we may need to look at some solutions for. When we get into the developments, really we were focusing on where we would see more demolitions and rebuilds, where we'd see new infill development, and how quickly things on the west side of the district um, would see some new enrollments, and specifically what type of development that might be. That's a 100,000 foot view. You're gonna see a lot of maps in this analysis that we want to give you perspective of geography. So on this map, we're showing the district boundary, which is always gonna be on every map, the purple line. In this case, we're focusing on the cities, which are the colors. And uh, know the map extent, it's a little bit small, maybe in your visuals, um, but when you see these in a complete PDF, we can zoom into different things. And the point of this is to show there's a lot of cities, particularly on that northeast side of your community. We further break your district by your existing elementary school attendance areas, which again are the solid colors. This would be for the boundaries in 1920. We do the same thing for your secondary attendance areas for the junior highs and the high schools. We further break the district into planning areas, and we have a little over 700 of them that we're managing what's happening with enrollments, demographics, and development. On this map, they're um, shown as the green lines. So again, breaking it down to a very small area. We look at this in close, what you can start to see is the power of the data sets that we collected and used for this analysis. So we see the base map is an aerial. There's parcel lines, which are the gray lines. 
Um, dots represent students. The larger the dot, the greater the grade that student is. And you can see there's many locations where we have multiple students in one area, and that's because there's multiple students in that household in the power of some of those data sets. All of this gets put into what we call a sophisticated forecast model. Just know it's statistics, it's regression, it's trying to look at known variables and understand those known variables. What does that look like in the future for your enrollment? It's different for each of these 700 planning areas because of different variables. What type of housing inventory? What's the value of that housing inventory? What we're seeing for the number of students in those areas? All of those things have a different impact on what our outlook would be for those 700 planning areas. Here on page 15, this is a short list of some of those data sets that we were looking at to try to understand what the future may have in store for your school district. We look at census data. So when you look at page 16 and page 17, you'll see some visuals where we're trying to understand where children may be in 2024 or where females are, because where females are and the age of those females are a direct indicator of what we could see for future children in those future years. And when we show the orange and red areas, it's where it's the greatest density as we radiate down to those greens and blues, the least density. So you can see on these maps as we go to the west, um, you can see there's quite a bit of area that's blue. And if we look at the corridors around I-35, they're blue because most of that's non-residential. So it starts to make sense in some of these aspects uh, with the visuals and what's actually in the ground. The next few pages I won't spend much time on, but they give you some demographics to understand who is in your district, who's attracted to move into your district, how does that relate to your population, your housing, your income and the workforce, uh, some of these variables may be different as we see the outcomes of COVID-19. Um, we give you a breakdown for some understanding of what those variables would be in respect to other neighboring districts, so like Blue Valley and Olathe, but as well as the cities um, and the county. You can see what is, how do you relate with, let's say, ethnicity, or how do you relate with the total number of housing units? So again, who's moving into your district? Other information as well that gets into employment information. I want to spend a moment on this slide. This is a very foretelling future for the district. This is county life birth dates uh, information that goes from 2005 to 2018. So we can see the number of live births that occurred in Johnson County. And to the right, as we get to the school year, we can see the number of kindergartners that we had five years later. So a couple things that started to stand out to us is when we look at 2018, the latest data we can pull into this, we have about 7,100 births. And if we go back to 2008 and 2007, you can see we had 7,800 and 7,900 births. So we have fewer live births in the county, which as we start to look at the percent share that we get for kindergartners five years later, we can, you can see we're a little over a quarter uh, percent, so a little over 25% of what uh, kindergartners we can expect to have 25 years later or five years later. So if we have fewer live births, we potentially have fewer kindergartners. Some past enrollment data, this gives you a breakdown from 1011 through 1920, the number of students by grade. And uh, what I wanted to call to attention is we've typically been seeing senior classes graduating 
and being replaced by similar sized and a little bit larger incoming kindergarten classes. That naturally gives us an increase, but we're starting to see some of these larger grades work their way into the upper high school grades, which will make it a challenge with the information I just gave you about live birth data to have senior classes being smaller than incoming kindergarten classes. We look at things with the cohort change. We're trying to understand how does this enrollment change as a first grader becomes a second grader or a seventh grader becomes an eighth grader. And some of the things that stand out is we see a very large increase from eighth to ninth grade, very typical of homeschool, parochial, private school kids coming into your system. So that makes a lot of sense. We see that with a lot of the neighboring districts that we work with here. But then we see, again, typical to all the districts that we work with, decreases from 9th to 10th, 10th to 11th, and 11th to 12th. Um, so again, we're just trying to understand what that composition of, of enrollment is. Uh, spend a little bit of time on the next couple slides. This gets into the transiency of your district. So in migration, what we see here is the dots represent where students are new in 1920 that were not there in 1819. Um, we show you a bullet point of the last three years. We have a little over 2,000 students. We zoomed in together in this map. You'd see the breakdown of elementary being red, middle school being blue, high school being green dots. Multiple students in households, um, we'd see some red dots and green dots on the same household and, and so on. But again, where are they new to the district? Throughout um, the district, we see new students. We look at the corollary of this, and that's the out-migration. So again, the dots representing students that were receiving services in 1819, but not receiving them in 1920. Um, what we're seeing is we typically are seeing more students that left the district than those that came into the district, thus a negative number that we see for the last two years of 224 for this year and 187 the previous year. Um, I will show you one other video and then I want to go into uh, some things about your developments. Um, as we talk about the movement of students, uh, Brandon put together a really cool map that you're going to see that goes back to 10-11, and we start to see um, where the density of students are based on their address. The red areas represent where we have the greatest density of students, and so you can see we have this real poor pocket of students right along I-35 and uh, about to see where my cursor is. This is 95th Street, so you can see just to the south a huge um, pocket of students over time that's remained um, really dense um, over the years looking at this going back to 11, 12. I'll let this play one more time through. If I play some of the other maps that look at the planning areas, you would see the value of our modeling because each of these planning areas change year to year. One year they may increase, the next year they may decrease. And so that's really the value of looking at things in this small planning so if I go to a, a few other things, we, we've documented stuff. There's so many cool things in this uh, presentation where we can talk about transfers, what that means for intra-transfers, so movement of students between the buildings that may be related to programs. So students that are residing in one attendance area, attending another building, it may be actual transfers with babysitting and programs. So lots of good information that we've worked with uh, on administration, on what this all means. Um, again, we show that with the elementary, middle school, and high school. So, some really cool things. 
with developments, our focus has been what's been happening with census data, with new people, households moving into your district, what we're seeing with building activity and what that means with the actual change of enrollments. The cool thing about Shawnee Mission School District, you're a very mature district. So some of these changes with new inventory don't have nearly as large an impact as your existing housing inventory. We look at things with your yield rates. Um, how many students do we get for every 100 units? So if we look at this particular um, chart that we see here, if I look at Apache, back in 2010, we had 20 uh, K-5 students or K-6 students for every 100 single family units. And it's kind of went up and down. And here in 2019, it's 18 for every 100 units. We do the same thing for each of the elementary attendance areas, um, as well with the multifamily units. Again, trying to get an understanding of how enrollment and, and developments uh, makes an impact. We look at things with your median home values. Um, so on this particular map, the orange and red areas would be the greater value inventory. You can see right along the 35 spine is where we have the most affordable housing inventory in your community. Um, we'll look at where the building activity has occurred. I just want to highlight this on the east side for the most part in Prairie Village and the northeast communities is the demolitions and rebuilds. So again, we try to factor that into what we could potentially see for regreening areas in these older communities. Um, different developments that are in progress, so you can understand what's been built, what potentially could be built, what city it's in, um, and then just some different information that we track. I did want to kind of showcase stuff on Lenexa. Um, one of the things that we put together in these four tables, and we did this for each of the cities within the Shawnee Mission School District, and we have four tables. Table one is going to be isolating, looking at single-family units. So a lot of information on the table where the left-hand side is the number of units. The right-hand side represents the number of students. And so the columns, these orange columns, represent the number of units. So we can see in 2010, we can see the number of single-family units has ramped up in 2018 and 2019. But the number of students that we've received 2010 to 2019 has decreased. When we look at table two, we've isolated for multifamily units, which is everything that's not single family. We can see that over time, the number of students has kind of been up, it's down, and really oscillates quite a bit. When we look at table three, we can see overall, when we combine the single family and multifamily units, isolating with the city limits within uh, the school district boundary, we can see overall from 2010, we have fewer students, almost 500 students, fewer than what we saw in 2010 here in 2019. Then in Table 4, we have given you a breakdown of the number of students based on whether it's single family or multifamily um, in your community. So again, we do this with each of the cities. A lot of information. So as I move through all this, they have gone a little bit over my 15 minutes. I thought it was important that you guys understand some of the information that we have here. Transition into enrollment projections. So I started out with what your forecast is. And this visual on page 61 gives you the breakdown of enrollments for elementary, which is K6 in the red, or current and past, though so the primary red, the 
current and past middle school is the primary blue. So the junior high is this number here. Then the high school is the green. As we go over the next five years, this is the likely RSP projection for the elementary, the junior high, and the high school. So the pink is the elementary, blue is the junior high, green is the high school. As you can see, we're at about 26,600 kids now, maybe going down to about 26,400. And you can see what that breakdown is for each of those grade levels. We also have provided you a breakdown for each of the buildings. And I'll take about two minutes here and then I'll hand this over for the board to ask questions or comments and, and I'll try to answer them. So we have a lot of information on these um, next five tables for each of the buildings. So starting on the left-hand side, we list each of the buildings. We have what feeder it's in. As you move to the right, we show you the enrollments three different ways from 1617 to 1920. And it's the same for each building where the middle row, the green font is based on your attendance boundary, who actually resides that would be K through six. So if we look at Apache um, here in 1920, 554 K6 students that resided in that boundary. The bottom row, the attend in the blue font is the number of students based on the student data that we received who actually attended that building. So again, with Apache, we have 538. So if we looked at this, the 554 to 538 would show we had students that went to one of the other elementary students that ties back to the intra-transfer information that's in this analysis. And you would say, hey, we, we grew by about 16 kids. We, we lost 16 kids. Well, it's different than that. If we look at the top row, which is a subset of the reside. So this purple font is who resided and actually attended that building. So we actually had students that left and went to other buildings within your system. So this 554 to 516, those roughly 40 kids, they went to one of the other elementary buildings. But we gained 18 kids that came from the other buildings to get to that 538. So that's the past data. As we move to our projections, we show you it two ways, based on the reside, your existing attendance area, and all of those kids, if they were going to go to that building, how many kids would we have in each of these buildings? And if we look at Apache, we had 554. You can see each of the years it slowly declines to 24, 25. We'd have 507 K6 students. If the intra-transfer trends were to hold steady, you can see what we would be forecasting for that attend enrollment. Again, we do this for each of your buildings at the elementary level. We do eat for this for each of your junior high buildings and as well the high schools. We also have given you a 10 year outlook by grade so you can see where things may be headed. You can see some years um, we're up. You can see as we get out to 27, 28, we get back to the number of kids that we currently have here in 1920. Again, another way of looking at what this analysis is. So again, moving forward, um, what we tried to tie into this is trends that we're starting to see with COVID-19 data. Um, a lot of this is going back to some of the economic indicators in the community, um, things that may help with regreening, maybe multi-generational families living in a household, and ultimately with the initial examination of some of the capacity of your buildings, um, we determined um, that uh, Briarwood is your hottest spot there may be some solutions um, that may be able to be implemented 
administration can talk more about. So with that, I yield back to um, the board and administration for any comments or questions. Um, I'm at the ready. Hey. Um, I can go through the list and ask folks if they have any questions at this time. Uh, get started. Um, Ms. Goodburn, do you have any questions? I don't. Okay, thank you. Dr. Sinclair, do you have any questions? Um, sorry, let me, uh, oh, I am unmuted. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you for this presentation. Um, I uh, look forward to spending a little more time with it over the next couple of days. Um, I, one of the questions I had in your experience um, looking at uh, working with mature school districts, um, what kind of um, variability do you see kind of over time? If I look at Shawnee Missions enrollment from 2010 to 11 to kind of what you're projecting into 2024, you know, there's a difference of about a thousand students. Um, is that kind of typical in mature districts? Um, or is, is, do you have any sense of that? Okay, great question. So I'll go back to page 41 that I'm now showing on your screen. Mm -hmm. One of the indicators that we really focus on in a mature district is the value of homes and the type of housing product. So is it single family, is it multifamily? Uh, focusing on, um, there's some of your inventory that might be section eight or low income housing. And how do we see some of those things transition over time? Um, we've seen some areas where they may redevelop those projects, um, maybe go through a, a repurposing or a remodeling to bring them up to different standards. So. We really focus on the existing inventory to determine what we would call a subdivision life cycle. They all go through this. And if we had even more data that we could geocode back to where they actually live, you would see that some of these areas, if we go back 40, 50 years, they would ramp up and have a whole bunch of students and then they come down or they may have a lot more seniors or second graders, so there's a subdivision life cycle. We really focus on values and type of development to try to get at this mature district. Where do we see these potential changes occurring? Okay, so can you characterize, would you characterize the kind of changes we've experienced as fairly typical? Absolutely, very typical, very typical. Okay. Um, Oh, and then on the, okay, that's okay. I'm good for now. Thanks. Thank you. Ms. Embry, do you have any questions? Uh, yeah, I, I have a couple questions. I'm interested in understanding, and I apologize for some of the first times I've seen this kind of enrollment study, um, where families fit in this if they are choosing to go to like a private or parochial, parochial school or not a Shawnee Mission School. So essentially we're we have students who are attritioning out of the Shawnee Mission School District to something else, but do reside inside of these boundaries. How does this model um, account for them? Great question. So our modeling gets at what I would say the marketability of your district is. So historically, we know where students live and the choices to say, hey, we want to come 
um, to your K-12 system. So we're modeling what we think the likely number of students would be based on demographic data that's available in each of these cities to get at where we see this regreening. And so the potential of them saying, hey, we're going to come into your district. Some of the census data that we look at, we're also aware of, and we have to understand what's happening with the county live birth data. So we're always trying to see what that benchmark is if it starts to spike up. One of the assumptions that we're thinking may happen that could be a positive out of COVID-19 is with everybody being at home for three months, maybe we start to see more babies in five years that are now coming into your system. So those are some of the trends that we really try to tie into is the live birth data, but then some of the census data sets of how we're seeing some changes that are occurring demographically in your communities, particularly with some of the suburbs. So we may be seeing, um, like years ago with the work we did in KCK, we saw a huge spike in Hispanic families that were moving into the district and then it leveled off. And then now what we've done our district or KCK or down in Wichita, we've seen some changes in some of these subgroups where they're a little bit smaller than what they were. Um, is this related to some of the immigration policies? Is this related to some of the things that we're seeing with live birth data? So we're trying to take all those variables and push this into those 700 planning areas and say, hey, here's what we think the number of kids could be in your district based on these trends that are happening within the county, but then more specifically, how are they going to be attracted into your system? And if I dig a little bit deeper, as we see some of the investments the district, you as the board and administration have made with building new buildings, how does that relate to the attractiveness of people choosing to buy that housing that's near those new buildings? And so some of these areas we've definitely seen what I would coin as re-greening, and that's an infusion of dollars you've made, but also dollars that the cities may have made with, let's say, storm sewers, wastewater lines, the roads, sidewalks, trails, all those things have an impact on why people want to move someplace within your district boundary. Thank you. Can I ask uh, one additional question I had was, I noticed our elementary transfer rate was at 8.1%, and having done this in other districts, is that High, low, average, how should we feel about that number? I would say that the feeling about that number, I would look at it two different ways. If I'm an administrator, it could be a little bit frustrating for how you staff because there's the flexibility. But if I view that as a parent, I like that there's the opportunities that if something may be for my accommodations for my family or for the programming my kids would like to have, um, that's really nice to have. And I think because you have available capacity at a lot of these buildings, um, this gives some opportunities for people to be able to move um, to some of these buildings. And we've talked a little bit about this with administration that um, there's things to watch with the intra-transfers, but for the most part, it um, when you have this number of 8%, I don't see that as high. It's, it's something that is maybe a tradition um, in your district to allow students those choices within the parameters of what the district policy is. Okay. Um, moving on, to Ms. Boardman, do you have any questions? I do. Thank you. Um, 
I actually, uh, Dr. Fulton, I'm curious to see kind of your thoughts on this data, um, just with your experience in other districts. Sure. Uh, what is this data saying to you? What are some areas that, you know, we should keep an eye on? And what are some areas that, you know, are, are really positive? Yeah, these data, you know, doing these studies is important. I think for one thing, it affirms our uh, process, our current process for doing enrollment projections. Uh, they're, you know, we're accurate, which is good, but to have someone like Rob come in with his expertise and take, bring his lens to it is helpful, particularly when you're looking more than one or two years out. Uh, we get great, a great idea of what our demographic trends are and tendencies, uh, particularly with where, what schools are going to have uh, the same, less or more populations. That really helps with long range planning, for example. We talked about Briarwood. We know that it's overcrowded, uh, so that's and that's an that's a reality that's not going to change. And we can look five years out and know that's still true. So that gives us an opportunity to do some action planning around how to address that issue. Uh, and then it also really gives us a good uh, understanding of what future expenses might be with respect to bond issues. So we can really begin to be strategic. And making sure that we're spending bond issue money wisely. But uh, those are some of the big picture ways in which uh, these, uh, these data can be used for planning purposes. Is there anything that you see just kind of at first glance, and I know you haven't had a, a lot of time to really marinate on this, um, but is there anything that kind of sticks out to you as like, hey, we should kind of keep an eye on this, or does everything look pretty status quo in your opinion, or? No, there's no there's no surprises in here. I think the one thing that we do have to keep an eye on is keep watching uh, for neighborhoods that might regreen and also keep an eye on the apartment complexes because we have a lot of uh, we have areas with some pretty high end apartments. That's not likely to bring a lot of students, but there is capacity to have more students. And so we need to keep a very close eye on those. That's where with the higher population density, you can get a sudden burst in, in student enrollment. But they, these kind of planning processes help you to uh, hopefully avoid surprises. Thank you. I appreciate that, Dr. Fulton. Thank you. I might add too, we have, uh, we have another presenter who's due to come on at 5.30. I know he's waiting in the wings just for awareness. Okay, thank you. I will shoot to Mr. Stratton. Do you have any questions? Did I ask you a few questions? My apologies. <laughs> No, you didn't. Um, okay, thank thanks. You. Thank you. Uh, I'm interested in the chart that showed each of the different schools um, as it related to who reside versus who attends. I'm going to use my own phrase of the reside to attend ratio, because I found that interesting that in some cases it's this way, in some cases it's it's flipped or reversed. My, my question comes from that. Do you see data like that in order to uh, ferret out reasons why? Meaning, do we see over time that the ratio of those that reside versus those that attend are choosing those schools because of special programming that's available or unique to that school? Or is it a location preference? Or even more importantly, you were touching on it just a minute ago, is it because new school was either rebuilt or remodeled? And do we see those ratios change because of that? Great question, and I'll answer in a may 
ship this over to Dr. Fulton to follow up on. So with the data sets that we have, we don't get all of the whys to why that's occurring, but our model is picking up that there are these choices. So a couple of things you've already brought about that this starts to bring to light. Is it because there's a particular program that's in a building that's drawing students to that? And you can maybe start to look at is there reason to maybe move programs to other buildings that a have space for the program but might be more conveniently located to where the student population is that's that's one element the second might be it could um, relate to um, other things that get into let's say cultural elements traditions of some buildings that people want to go to um, that might relate to family circumstances where maybe they lived in the Apache, alphabetical here, they lived in Apache, but they moved out of Apache and they still want their student to remain at Apache. So there's there's different reasons to, to the why, but it definitely alerts um, that some sort of change is occurring and then the district can respond by looking deeper into why are we seeing these changes and is there something that we need to do or is it something that's perfectly acceptable because let's say the programs are better equipped to be in a different building? With that, I ask if, if Dr. Fulton has anything more to add to it. Um, you can I think that substantively addresses it. And sometimes it can be uh, as simple as that's where childcare is located and it's a convenience. So there's a myriad of reasons why from programmatic to personal preference. And uh, we do track this data pretty carefully because we have a large number of transfers and is occurring throughout the the district. So we have to keep a close eye on it. Not everybody is able to transfer because we want to make sure that we have capacity for all of our resident students in a way that doesn't overcrowd classes or doesn't lead to uh, adding staff when it isn't necessary to do so because that that adds on expense. We want to try to use staff as effectively uh, as and as cost effectively as we can. Thank you. Thank you. And then finally, Reverend Guy, do you have any questions for this evening on this topic? I do. Um, I appreciate this this five year look and all of the data that went into this. Uh, my question is, having lived in Johnson County my whole adult life, I have seen um, apartment complexes that went up that were initially kind of luxury, high end, high cost apartments over the years become affordable family housing and so we have whole areas that used to have very few children that suddenly now have hundreds and hundreds of families and students living in a concentrated area and like many communities we have been had a building boom on high-end luxury apartments here recently um, that are not affordable family housing now but just if you had a crystal ball looking down the road, 10 years, 20 years, I mean, what is the likelihood that some of those concentrated areas could become affordable family housing and we just need to keep our eye on the horizon that there might be a lot of students concentrated in some of those areas down the road? I'll jump in real quick and then have Rob respond, but there is definitely a life cycle pattern to apartment complexes. Rob, what's the typical, you look, is it 10? probably not 10 years, but you look 20, 30 years out, at what point do you start to see rent prices come down and affordability for families increase? 
Yeah, the, the, the first key element with multifamily is the number of bedrooms that are available in these complexes. So a lot of these higher ends um, have been studio and one bedroom, and there may be fewer two bedroom and three bedroom units. So the likelihood with the current conditions of how a family may want more than one bedroom of actually having students there is, is much lower than what we would see in some of the other multifamily units where they have, let's say, more two and three bedroom units. So that's the first element, the number of units. And then the reinvestment that they make or continue to make in those developments is going to drive what can they actually charge for their rents. And then the third piece to that is, as we've seen an explosion of multifamily development throughout the metro, but definitely here in Johnson County and south and west out of your district. Um, how does that impact with the supply and demand on what they can charge for their rent? So those are all things that we monitor and ultimately why doing this type of study on a regular basis is very helpful to get ahead of when some of those things might be changing so that you can make the right choices with what needs to happen in those buildings that are around those developments. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, I don't have any questions, um, so I guess we can turn it over to you, Dr. Fulton, to move us to the next item. Thank you, Great. Mr. Schwartz, uh, for here this evening. Yeah, Rob, thank you very much. That was excellent. Uh, our next presenter is uh, Mr. David Artiberry, and I'm going to, uh, he's our bond counsel, and so I'm going to invite him to go ahead and uh, just begin his presentation. David. I believe he's muted. Mr. Arterberry, my screen is showing that you are muted. Well, while he's being unmuted, uh, Dr. Atha, would you like to provide a, a more robust introduction for Mr. Arterberry? He may be muted too. It does appear that Dr. Atha is muted as well. Okay. <laughs> I do not have the ability to unmute. Yeah, I do not either. There's Dr. Atha. Dr. Atha, we were, we were uh, waiting on Mr. Atterbury to provide his presentation. Would you like to provide an introduction to him? Can you hear me? I'm waiting for him to be unmuted. Yes. Mr. Arterberry is unmuted at this time, so since we have okay, time, good. let's shoot over to him. Thank you. Um, good evening. I, I don't really have a long presentation, but um, just as a matter of introductions, I'm David Arterberry with, with Stiefel Nicholas. Um, we've worked with the school district for a number of years on your bond issues. Um, most recently, what we've um, with Dr. Fulton and Dr. Atha and, and Mr. Knapp on is um, preparing some projections um, for what future bond issues might look like um, in terms of um, borrowing amounts and, and timing. Uh, and this, I think, is all in an effort to try to address um, some of the facility needs that, that you have been working um, to, to identify. Um, specifically, uh, as I understand it, the school district is looking at um, a bundle of improvements that would be occurring over the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, and those improvements um, 
in aggregate represented about oh seven hundred and fifty million dollars worth of, of projects, uh, new buildings, uh, exist, replace and improve existing buildings. Obviously, a very big number. Um, the, the, the exact timing, though, of when you would want to borrow money for those projects is uh, is still up in the air. So we were working to sort of prepare some different scenarios as to what that might look like in terms of the impact on your mill levy. Um, the, the two scenarios that we most recently came up with um, involve um, doing one issue um, sometime with an election either in late um, or in late, not late, in, in November of 2019 or in say January of 2021. Um, that would then be followed with another election, either five to seven years after that. Um, and then a final election sometime right around 2033. Um, e the two different scenarios involve different borrowing amounts at each time, but ultimately when the final bonds would be issued, it would be the final 750,000 would be issued um, in 2033. All of those scenarios involve mill levy increases at certain points in time, but ultimately what would occur is that the mill levy, in order to accommodate that $750 million, would need to go from its current level of about 7.4 mills up ultimately in 2033 to about 11 and a quarter mills. Um, so an increase of about 3.85 mills. Um, the question would then be, you know, how would you want that to occur? Um, in one of the scenarios, we, we had you issuing approximately $187 million, having an election for approximately $187 million um, next year in 2000, and I'm sorry, in November of this year or early 2021 that could be done without a mill levy increase. Um, another scenario, we had you issuing um, approximately $340 million um, in the first election. Um, that would involve an increase of, in the mill levy. I think it was about, oh, hold on a second here. Um, it was about 2.7 mil. Uh, and then, of course, after that, the mill levies would go up a little bit more with the future bond issues so that ultimately the total levy increase would be about, you know, 3.85 mills. Um, I'm kind of rambled here, but that's sort of been what we've recently been working on with the school district. And obviously, there's just a, a whole host of variables that go into preparing these projections. Uh, things like the, the interest rate on the bonds, the, the assessed valuation growth, delinquent tax rates, um, all of which can dramatically impact these projections. But, um, but we think the numbers that we've come up with to this point are pretty safe, uh, conservative projections based on um, you know, historical data and historical trends in the school district. Um, are we opening it up for questions at this time? You just referenced all the uh, variables. I'm not going to ask you what interest rates are going to be in the year 2033, 
But what I am going to ask is what rate do you use to predict or uh, the increase in assessed valuation? Is it a straight line or do you try to look at trends within the county? Because that can really fluctuate. Yeah, you know, that's a real good question. And we had quite a long discussion about that on Friday um, when I met with Dr. Athan, Dr. Fulton, and, and Mr. Knapp. Um, historically, over the last four or five years, the school district's assessed valuation growth rate, I think, has somewhere been in the range of you know, six to eight percent per year. Those are, I think we all concluded that those were taken during a period of really strong economic growth, and, and we just don't have that anymore. So what we try to do is ratchet that back. We've assumed that for the next couple of years, the assessed valuation each year will go at, grow at 3%. Now, you might say, well, gosh, with, with COVID-19, 3% assessed valuation growth could be really high, uh, and, and that's true. But what we do know is that this year, the initial indications are that your assessed valuation growth is probably going to be more in the four to five percent range. So I, I think hopefully for these first two years, the three percent is a is an achievable level of growth. And then the two assumption after that, I think historically has been um, is a pretty conservative number. Thank you. Um I cannot actually see a lot of the screens right now, so I'll run through the list just to make sure I'm not missing anybody. Reverend Guy, do you have any questions? Um, just, I'm sure people want to know the bottom line. So um, when you're talking about mills, they want to know what, you know, what's the bottom line for their own particular home. So um, I don't know, how do you figure that on a $100,000 yeah. home or whatever that number is? Yeah, for, for, for um, for one mill on a $100,000 home, it's $11.50 a year. So if we did, you know, we're talking about 3.85 mills, um, round that to four mills. So that would be what, right around $45 per year per $100,000 of value. Okay, thank you. That's my only question. Sure. Thank you. Um, Ms. Boardman, do you have any questions? None at this time. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Henry, do you have any questions? No questions. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Sinclair, do you have any questions? Laura got me covered. Reverend Guy did. Thank you. Great. And Ms. Goodburn, do you have any questions? I don't. Okay. Well, great. And how much time do we have? And this evening. We're, we're rolling right along. Um, well, I'll turn it back over to you, Dr. Fulton. Okay. Thank you very much. And uh, Mr. Arterberry, thank you so much for the expertise that you and Nicholas bring to our work. We appreciate your presentation. That concludes the workshop. Um, I believe Dr. Atha. Dr. Atha. Is Dr. Atha raving? Mm -hmm. Okay, Dr. Atha. Well, I'm finally unmuted. I hope you can hear me now. Um, but David is with uh, Stifle Financial, and uh, which was formerly known as George K. Baum. And uh, David has run numerous numerous scenarios for us. As a matter of fact, I think last county run about 25 before we got down to uh, the presentation this evening with where we are with option A and option B. So I want to thank him for taking time and, and visiting with us this evening and answering your questions. And I apologize for the technical difficulty. No apology necessary. 
Um, well, thank you so much, Mr. Atterbury, for joining us. Do we want to take a five-minute break before the meeting starts at six? You don't have to log out, but maybe just mute and shut off your video and be back in five minutes if you need to stretch your legs. Sounds good. Okay, it is 6 p.m. and I will call the June 8th regular board meeting of John Anderson School District order. The first item on our agenda is the Pledge of Allegiance. We could all say that together, please. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, Jamie, for having the flag. Um, moving on to 1.3, adoption of the agenda. I'll seek a motion to adopt tonight's agenda. So move, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Do we have a second? Second, Stratton. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, it passes unanimously. Moving on to 1.4, approval of minutes for the special meeting on May 26, 2020. Seek a motion for approval. Henry, no. Thank you, Ms. Henry. Is there a second? Goodburn, second. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. All those in favor, please say aye. Aye. Are there any opposed? Hearing none. Passes unanimously. And then 1.5 approval of the minutes for the regular meeting. I'll move, I'll move approval. Thank you, Sinclair. Doctor. Is there a second? Henry, second. Thank you, Ms. Henry. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 And are there any opposed? Okay. Hearing none, that passes unanimously and moving on to 2.1, the superintendent report for Dr. Paul. Okay, thank you very much. Great to see everybody this evening. Well, I wanna start off, first of all, by, uh, you know, sharing the, of course, the heartbreak that we feel for the killing of George Floyd. And, and we've talked about that to, spoke about, spoken about that to our community a couple of different times this past week. And where we are as a society, I want to really emphasize a, a couple of things that that are important for all of us, and that is first of all that we just continue to take time to listen and learn from one another. Sometimes when you get into uh, this these these uh, difficult uh, uh, periods of time, there's a tendency to shut down and only look at one point of view, and it is so critical that we learn to uh, to really listen to one another grow from this experience together collectively and support every one of our children and everybody in our community. One of the things that we've tried to do through our work over the past couple of years and previous years too, of course, is to really lay out some plans where we make sure that we are looking at our work through a lens of equity. And that means that we care about every child, we see every child, we have high academic expectations for all children, and we're willing to change what we do as adults to help every child achieve their potential. I know one of the things that we've been doing this year along those lines is uh, we've really uh, been taking a look at some of our practices. That's why we've engaged in uh, 
cultural proficiency training for all staff. It's also why the Human Resources Department is really doing a great job of aggressively recruiting in historically black colleges and universities. Uh, they're, they're working hard to try to, uh, to recruit, retain, and, and create through the development of, uh, of kind of grow your own with our students, uh, a, a core of educators that's more reflective of, our, of the children that we serve. That can be race, it can be gender, it can be all kinds of human attributes, but we need a diverse workforce to make sure that we're doing a great job of reaching out to every single child that we serve. So I won't go into all of the things that we're doing here. I do know that from time to time, you know, it's difficult because you work hard and sometimes you get criticized for what you do or what, what you don't do. But I would just kind of encourage everybody to, um, to kind of sit back, reflect a little bit, and where we can get better, let's get better. Let's use, let's use data to kind of objectify, but also inform our work. But most importantly, let's just have a heart for kids and do what we know was best for them. And that includes, as adults, us thinking about how we can make a difference in their individual worlds, and collectively for all of our children so that they grow up in a world of opportunity and not have limitations placed on them like what may have happened and indeed did happen in past generations. So I just wanna thank the board for your support of each and every child every day in the Shawnee Mission School District. Well, there is a lot of work going on right now in regards to preparing for next school year. There are lots of questions. What is school going to look like? Is it gonna be the same? Is it gonna be different? Are we gonna be in school? Is it gonna be virtual? And we know already through some of the data collection that we've done on our uh, this past spring that there are some things that if we're in a virtual world that we need to do better, and I'm confident that we will do, uh, we will be able to address some of those, some of those areas where we can improve. Uh, but we also know that we are into a place where a lot of parents have mixed feelings. Some don't feel comfortable sending their child to school. Some absolutely believe that their child and every other child should be in school. The thought exchange data that we got back clearly illustrates a variety of viewpoints on what school should look like next year. So what are we gonna do about it? Well, we have a group of uh, staff that are working right now on identifying strategies. As administrators and teachers, thinking about what can learning look like, what are different modalities in which we can deliver uh, learning to, uh, to all of our students. If a student has a need to be educated virtually, we've gotta be prepared for that. Now, they may have underlying health reasons, either for themselves or for family members that requires that. Uh, we hopefully will be able to educate a lot of schools in school. Uh, that may need to happen with social distancing. What does that look like? Well, this group is working on some planning right now that will help to answer some of those questions. And as we get those plans firmly formulated, we'll be reaching out to parents, students, and staff to get their feedback. My hope is here in the next week or so, probably sometime, uh, to do a little video 
for our community that highlights here's what here's what you told us here's what we know and here's an expected timeline for when we will be able to provide you with some answers about what next about what this come upcoming school year looks like one important piece of information the uh the state will be coming out with uh, guidance for school districts across kansas uh, by no later than july 10. what we'll do is we'll go ahead and get our plans put together and then once we get the state guidance we'll cross check our plans with their guidance make sure that we're in compliance with expectations and then after that date, sometime uh, in uh, really kind of later in July, we'll be able to provide you as a board and to the community specific uh, details about what learning will look like. The uh, couple of other updates too related to COVID-19. Uh, I do wanna mention that we announced today that athletic fields and playgrounds are, are open, and that happened as of today. So all who use playgrounds and fields are expected to continue to follow social distancing guidelines. Uh, conditioning for high school athletes, which was originally scheduled to start on July 6th, has now been moved up to uh, Monday, June 15th. Part of these changes are due to some adjustments that have happened in the state guidelines and kind of the reopening up of Kansas. And we're adjusting uh, ours in those areas as a result. Now on the conditioning for high school athletes, while they can start on Monday, July 15th, we are gonna require that all follow social distancing guidelines. I also wanna emphasize that rentals of Shawnee Mission facilities remain suspended uh, through August. We're going to continue to monitor uh, guidance from public health officials, and we're going to follow those guidelines, and we're going to do everything in our power to lessen the impact, uh, to lessen the, lessen the opportunity for transmission of COVID-19 and keep our community safe. So a couple of uh, key updates there. Uh, we have a lot of summer training going on right now. There's a number of educators across the school district that have engaged in training already this summer. Uh, just last week, we had a group of educators who joined an Impact Institute, which focused on a variety of topics related to literacy, including but not limited to core literacy instruction, literacy for diverse learners, and literacy for learners with dyslexia. So I can assure you there's still a lot of learning going on. Uh, also, a group of educators, I was, you know, enjoyed being part of this group, a group of educators uh, got together last week and took part in deep equity training. Individuals uh, who were able to participate in this phase of the training have been engaged to help implement a further deep equity training in each of their schools across the district. So this is part of training the trainer model. As mentioned, this is one of the goals outlined in the strategic plan developed by our community. And we wanna thank everyone for dedicating their time and their gifts, talents, and skills uh, to uh, not only their fellow colleagues, but also to their students as we continue our work with uh, cultural proficiency through our deep equity uh, training uh, partners. We want to share a reminder that enrollment is open throughout the summer for Project Finish. This is a diploma completion program for adult residents who live in Kansas. <clears throat> My apologies. Candidates have access to the online program and coursework 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
as long as they have access to the internet. And we'll continue to include information and enrollment resources in the board recap. Shawnee Mission librarians have collaborated with the Johnson County Public Library and created a website of library resources for elementary students to continue in summer reading. You know, in response to current circumstances, Johnson County librarians have really used, and our, and our Shawnee Mission librarians, they've really used their creativity and found safe ways to promote and encourage summer reading. Last week, they launched a summer reading program providing access to eBooks, virtual learning, and online summer programs. And we're so grateful for this collaboration of our school librarians and community librarians who are really working together to make sure that students can keep their reading skills sharp over the summer. And again, we'll recap. This spring, a group of Shawnee Mission students were honored for their excellence in imagination and animation. They received recognition through the Imagine uh, e Imagine Media Festival, which is a competition that draws students from across the KC metro area. Submissions are evaluated by individuals that work in a corresponding industry or higher education. Following students earn recognition in the final round. And 3D animation for first place, Lauren Patterson, Peterson rather, sorry, Lauren Peterson from the Shawnee Mission Animation Signature Program. And in second place, Will Swan from the Shawnee Mission Animation Signature Program as well. In music video category, in second place, Brogan Thomas, who's a Shawnee Mission West student for public service announcements. Uh, Brogan Thomas placed second uh, there as well. And then in the short film category, third place was awarded to Ashley Neiman, and who is a Shawnee Mission West student. So I want to congratulate all those students for their great accomplishments. A group of Shawnee Mission North students were honored this spring for their strong college and career preparation. And these students claim medals and trophies in the Jobs for America graduates, Kansas, that's also known as JAG-K, Region 7 Career Development Conference. Students competed in events demonstrating skill in public speaking, math, employability, community service, and project-based learning. State winners include Emily Caseda and Aliyah Marshall. And we want to uh, congratulate both of them. They, they, they got third place in the uh, service project category. Isabel Dominguez and Alex Morales, who earned sixth place for the poster project. Congratulations to both of them. The team also had several regional honorees who received trophies and medals this year. We're going to give their accomplishments another shout out through a link in the board recap. Congratulations to these students and their instructors, Amanda Poking and Michael Gerarlas. So congratulations to Amanda and Michael. And I want to thank you for taking time for this rather lengthy report. And that does my, include my superintendent report for this evening. Thank you, Dr. Fulton. Um, we'll move on to 2.2, the board report. Um, Ms. Boardman, do you have a report from us from the SMAC PTA? Um, I don't have anything to report. And Dr. Fulton, I just wanted to clarify in your on your superintendent report, you said high school conditioning can start July 15th. I just wanted to clarify. 
I, it's a big deal for a lot of us parents with high school athletes. So did you, I think you meant June 15th. I meant June 15th, and I want to thank you for that clarification. There's a big difference between those two dates. Yeah, because my kids are are getting excited. So right. thank you. Worth repeating, it's, it's moved from that original date of July 6th to June 15th. Thank you for bringing that to everybody's attention. Oh, no, thank you. Thanks. I know it's a big deal for a lot of kids. And again, I have nothing to report um, with SMAC PTA. Thanks. Thank you. Ms. Embry, do you have anything to report from us from the Education Foundation? Nothing new from the Education Foundation. Thank you. Reverend Guy, do you have anything for us from the KASB Board of Directors? Um, our board meeting is this Saturday, and so I will know more about what's going on after that meeting. That's all. Thank you. Ms. Goodburn, do you have a policy review committee report for us? Um, I do really quickly. Um, our next meeting is going to be June 18th, um, and it's a, it was moved back a week, but we will have a new set of KASB um, policy updates that we're getting, like, just, uh, I think, this week, and so that's why we pushed it back a week. Um, so we will be addressing a lot of those and looking at, the, at those at our next meeting. And additionally, um, I would like to bring back the board manual that we had discussed oh gosh back probably in november december january time frame and so i would really like for us to uh give one final look to that and do any updates to that and get that to everyone hopefully uh later in june or in july so that's what we'll be doing thank you i think the recommended changes on that are already in board docs for people to review Is that, that's correct right correct. it's correct okay great thank you um and then finance and facilities, Mr. Stratton, do you have an update for us from that committee? A quick summary that uh, our group again met via uh, video conference uh, last time on May 27th, right after our last board meeting, where we spent some time talking about the presentations by Mr. Knapp at both uh, board workshops regarding the finances and the creation of the budget. The committee has been very helpful in discussing uh, ways to both understand and then better communicate what is being presented in those. And so we're in the midst of uh, continuing to gather input and massage questions that would be uh, most helpful to put out on our website, to put out in communications, to, to help people uh, better understand the finances as we move through this budget approval process. Uh, we're gathering again via video conference at this point, scheduled for August 3rd, and uh, they've all been encouraged to uh, sit in on this meeting as well to be sure to watch the uh, presentations that take place today, because a lot of that will have to do with the finances and decision making of the district as well. That's it. And I will turn to Dr. Sinclair just to see if there's something else I missed. She's my colleague on this on this committee. That was very thorough update. Thank you. Right, and we, we hope there uh, will have some feedback for, him, for us after this workshop and board meeting tonight. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Um, the next item on the agenda is our legislative update from Dr. Stuart Little. So I'll have Dr. Holt turn it over to him. Oh, there yes. she is. Uh, we're going to have Dr. Uh, Dr. Little will provide a, an update on what's been happening with the legislature. So, Good evening. Can you all hear me okay? Yes. Great. Okay. Thank you, Madam Chair, uh, members of the board, and Dr. Fulton. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all. Uh, you should have a written report from me that should also get on the website soon. Um, I was last visited with you just on the 26th of May, which had been uh, kind of immediately after the 
the wrap up of the regular session had concluded and then had been followed by the veto of the COVID uh, response bill. And that all took place at the uh, uh, at the same time, almost we were right before we began to meet. So I'm going to generally try to catch you all up on uh, what happened as a result of that meeting, the governor's action and what that meant for the, the special session, how the special session unfolded. Uh, I don't intend to walk you through the history of this, but to make sure that it's connected to what we're interested in with regard to K through 12 finance and, and K through 12 policy issues, but just to give you guys some context. Um, so the veto, the wrap up session, the regular session, of course, concluded on May 22nd and the legislature passed a COVID bill, a tax bill, a couple of bills that had to do with that spent state revenue, one of those being an education bill. Uh, and the day we last spoke, the governor had vetoed the COVID response bill, but she also then uh, vetoed at least four other bills, including one of the education bills that I'd mentioned at that meeting. She had uh, vetoed them the 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 education bill, a uh, a banking financial institutions bill, because they uh, cost money, and she said in this period of financial uncertainty, we needed to have all the resources available that we could, and so she uh, vetoed those, and then also as she'd done on the day that I last spoke to you, when she vetoed the the uh, the COVID response bill. She wanted to reverse what had been the legislature had sent her, which had put constraints on her ability to manage the federal funds. She was going to have to go through some legislative committees to get approval to spend those. And then she was also going to have to uh, um, have her ability to manage the public health crisis constrained. They were going to allow uh, one more 15 day cycle for her to do an emergency proclamation related to health. And she realized that that would not allow her the capacity to do the things she needed to do. She vetoed the bill, called for a special legislative session, which took place just last week on June 3rd and 4th. So in the special session, there essentially was only one issue. We had four other bills vetoed, but the only thing that the legislature took action on was the COVID response bill. It, it, moving relatively quickly for the legislature, they went through and passed the bill by the mid-afternoon of the second day. Uh, it it essentially was the bill almost exactly as the governor had asked for. It gave her, again, authority over the federal funds that she wanted to, to have so that, that she could be uh, responsive. It um, extended the emergency declaration that she was only able to do in 15-day increments out 90 days to September 15th. So she's able to maintain that emergency declaration and then get a rolling every 30 day extension by the state finance council if she needs one. Why that's important is having an ongoing emergency proclamation is the foundation and the root of receiving federal aid, national guard assistance, all of those kinds of things that we do with the federal government. There's some uncertainty as to what happens when we issue a new uh, emergency declaration act. Uh, our emergency proclamation included in the bill were as well a couple of other things I wanted to mention that was sent to her. Um, it one issue that came up uh, was the potential for closing schools again in the fall. Uh, the legislature, this was not one thing that the governor requested, but the legislature added it in was that if the governor does 
uh, see closure of all of the public schools in the fall. Um, she would the, the state board of education would have to take a vote uh, and approve that action. So there would be that elected body there that would have to uh, affirm what she wanted to do by school closures. Of course, always under the law, you all still have the capacity to close the schools as well as the local health department. Um, but this clarifies a lot of those. There were also some restrictions put into the bill with regard to contact tracing, which we'll hear more and more as we get into the summer and fall and how we'll be tracking outbreaks and, and uh, second waves and those kind of things. But they put some restrictions on what the, the state can do with regard to contact tracing. Um, that um, also, that bill also extended a bunch of executive orders. Those of you that have seen any of those, everything from notaries to um, healthcare providers, telemedicine, curbside liquor, all those things were extended through January of next year. That was the only thing that was sent to the governor. That was the only thing that was passed. There was a small effort by the Senate Education Committee to revive the education bill from last uh, that they passed at the wrap-up session, but that never got any debate or any action. Uh, last thing I would mention is that uh, I passed this along to the administration, but as part of what the governor has implemented as well is the creation of this uh, task force. It's called the Strengthening People and Revitalizing Kansas Task Force. This is a group with an executive committee and then a, a, a steering committee that are tasked with um, providing input and putting together how the federal COVID response relief dollars will be spent. And so they had their first meeting on June 2nd. They had their second meeting today with everybody involved. And, and as you can see in the description of my report, there some of the a portion, I described this when we got together last time, a portion of the money that we got from the federal government went to uh, local units of government over 500,000. So Johnson County got like $115 million. And then the state has a pool of somewhere between 350, 400 million to spend for local units of government. There was a lot of uncertainty and questions about where those dollars would go. The, the recommendation, and this was by a resolution by the vote of the executive committee on, on the 2nd of June when they met, was they were going to require that local units of government, uh, that those funds would be distributed to local units of government, including schools. And, and in particular, they emphasized in Johnson and Sedgwick County that for those counties to receive those, these federal relief dollars, they would be required to allocate and share a portion of those dollars with school districts. I would remind you that this revenue will be for COVID response only items that were not in your budget from everything from PPE to plexiglass to overtime to any, those things that are attributable to COVID response, you can get relief for. There's, it's still unclear, as I suggested to the superintendent and staff that uh, working with the county health department, and the county commission in terms of how they're going to manage those resources in Johnson County will govern what the county is going to do with those dollars. But the state has has required that uh, local units share those dollars with uh, both cities and with school districts. Uh, and th those dollars have to be spent quickly too. So that's part of the, the issue. The last thing I would say is the legislature is gone. We've had the special session. 
during an election year, we're an election where every member of the House and every member of the Senate is facing re-election. We normally don't have a lot of legislative action, but I think this year because of COVID-19, the economic downturn and questions about state revenue, uh, we're probably going to have a lot of interim activity this summer and fall, and I'll keep you apprised. I think everybody's kind of gone home, and we're going to see what happens next at this point from the Topeka perspective. I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. Um, just run through really quick. Ms. Borgman, do you have any questions? No questions. Thank you, Dr. Little. I appreciate your update. Thank you, Reverend Guy. Do you have any questions? None at this time. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Sinclair, do you have any questions? Uh, just a quick point of clarification. The um, Thank you, Dr. Little. The um, discussion with the SPARC task force and allocating some of those dollars to the district, is that, and that is the estimated 2 million or so that Shawnee Mission should be receiving for COVID, or is that just point of clarification or additional dollars? I believe, so the, the state received about $100 million that um, went to the State Department of Education that is being distributed to school districts based on Title I schools, and that's a separate and discrete entity that's going to be used, I believe, for Title I schools and then for a small bump in special ed, I believe, is what the State Department had said they were going to use for that. This is separate and distinct from those dollars, and that may be what you're referencing. So this is kind of a, a, a new and unspecified as of yet pot of, of federal revenue that that the state is going to require that that uh, counties share with the school district. So I don't know how much it'll be. The pro rata figure is like $194 per person in uh, uh, in a in a in a county or a city, depending on where the the revenue goes. And it is also part of how what they have to factor in are uh, COVID uh, uh, cases and unemployment figures. So there's going to be some type of formula that's going to have to be uh, worked out, but that'll be something that uh, the, by the state's direction, school districts will be involved in that discussion. And I think up until the second, until last week when the task force executive committee made that decision, I'm not sure anybody was anticipating getting anything more than that $100 million pot that you described. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Stratton, do you have any questions? A real quick question. I wasn't sure if there was discussion in that special session about our elections for the primary and the general. And anything that came out of uh, those meetings that would change or clarify what our elections are going to look like? Um, no, there was not anything uh, that was that that came up in any uh, that that passed with regard to elections. So there's nothing that passed. There was some small conversation about. Um, um, well, it was just it, when having some committee work done, talking about trying to make some changes, but there was nothing that was in the COVID bill was the only one that was passed. Right, thank you. Thank you. Ms. Embry, do you have any questions? No questions for me. Thank you. And Ms. Goodburn, do you have any questions? No questions. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Little, very much for being here this evening to give us sure. the update. Thank Appreciate you. it. Okay, um, moving on to item 2.4, public comment. Um, we did not receive any requests for public comment this evening, and because we have a pretty meaty update coming on, I'm, I won't go through the whole 
um, description of public comment, and we'll just move on to 3.1, which is our strategic plan update. Um, Dr. Fulton is going to be providing this, and I'm just going to request, if we can, to wait to do the questions until at the end of the presentation, because there's a whole lot of information to front load, and then I'll go through and, and ask everybody what their questions are after he's had an opportunity to get through all the info. Uh, normally, I wouldn't do that, but there's just a lot here, so it could go we could be here for a really, really, really long time if we do our questions throughout the course of the presentation. So we will just turn this over to you, Dr. Fulton. Okay, great. Thank you very much. And we're excited tonight to bring you a strategic plan update. You know, uh, it's hard to believe, you can go to the next slide, please. It's, uh, it's, hard, to, uh, it's hard to imagine that uh, um, a year ago this time, we had not yet adopted our strategic plan. That didn't come until the last board meeting in June. And so this update is very timely in light of a year's worth of work that we've accomplished so far. Now, the purpose of my presentation this evening is to update you on progress regarding our, our strategic plan. And uh, this update is really specific to action steps that were identified earlier this year requiring further study and planning before taking action. Next slide, please. Now, when we engaged in strategic planning during the 18-19 school year, uh, we really worked hard to make this a community plan. And when we did that presentation on June 24th of 2019, that, that's when we presented it and the board approved it, uh, that planning process represented months of work by hundreds of committee members and patrons who participated in a thought exchange, which I think most people know by now is a, is a platform by which people can share ideas on important questions. Um, we had a lot of participation. And that participation included teachers, staff, students, parents, and community members. And during that time, as you'll recall, we included the adoption of a mission statement, which you see above, our beliefs and parameters for the work, clear and measurable objectives and strategies with action steps by which to achieve, by which to achieve those objectives. And we did all this collectively as a community. And in doing so, we made a long-term commitment to ensure that our children viewed their world and their learning in Shawnee Mission as a bridge to unlimited possibilities yet to be discovered. That's not just the slogan in the mission statement, that gets to the heart of what we're about. So it was a very exciting time, a year, uh, a little uh, more than a year ago. And as we go into this presentation tonight, we're gonna begin to think long-term, five, 10, 15, 20 years about what we need to be doing today to ensure that future generations of children have what they need for their learning and that the adults uh, have what they need to make sure that our children are successful. So if you go to the next slide, please. Uh, we created this image as a way of illustrating our plan and this image really represents the power of, prom of promise. SMSD's strategic plan commits to our children that as adults, 
we're going to make sure that their journey through their learning experiences in Shawnee Mission empowers them to develop a personalized learning plan that prepares them to be college and career ready and ensures that they have the interpersonal skills that they need for life success. Specifically, here are the here are our commitments in the full language of each objective. And I want to read these to you because we we talk about that that one sentence that encapsulates all three of them, but each of them holds power on their own. Here's the first one. Every student will achieve academic success through a challenging personalized learning plan. What do we know about children and learning? If children are involved in goal setting, if they take that learning and they own it, then the, the likelihood of success is much greater. Personalized learning plans are about owning what I'm doing as a learner and taking control of my learning. That's why personalized learning plans that are designed in meaningful ways are important for children. The second one, every student will develop and utilize personal resilience while mastering essential competencies that lead to college and career readiness. We talk about this notion of grit, and it is absolutely about building resilience to the good, the bad, the hard, the easy. And it is about our commitment, our equity commitment to every child as they move through the system and graduate, move on into life, that we have given them the academic foundation that they need. There's a lot of attention being paid nationally and even globally around this issue of ideas, the important skills that we need to have as humans to really make sure that we have a great foundation for life. That's what that speaks to. It's our obligation. It is our priority to make sure that every child masters those important ideas at a, at, at a level that allows them to successfully carry them into life. And then finally, and this, of course, we know is important, that every student has will develop interpersonal skills to be an engaged. We're seeing a lot of engagement right now in the country. An engaged, empathetic member of the local and global community. If we are successful in helping every single child realize these objectives in their lives, then we will have done our job in helping them to be life ready. These objectives are timeless. They're measurable, which is important because we can hold ourselves accountable to these. And most importantly, they're meaningful for every child. They're foundational to helping our students create aptitudes and attitudes for being a lifelong learner. That's why it's worth spending time on this wheel. Now, surrounding these objectives. Next slide, please. Surrounding these objectives are five strategies. This presentation addresses them collectively. Just as the objectives are connected throughout a child's learning experience, so too, these five strategies work in harmony to grow and sustain the success of every child. Each strategy has specific action steps that contribute to helping students collaborate. Oh, I'm, let me back up. 
Each strategy has specific action steps that contribute to helping students and adults collaborate in ways that support our children in their learning success. Each strategy and accompanying action step are part of an interconnected and interdependent system. Action step 4.26, which you see here as part of strategy four, really says this well and calls us to account. To be successful, we must have processes in place that allow us to thoughtfully and methodically work from data to monitor our progress and adjust course as needed to ensure every child finds personal success. Our three objectives define the destination and our strategic plan strategies with action steps provide a roadmap on how to get there. Next slide, please. Last fall in board meetings, we discussed the importance of taking time to study important issues, and from that study process, develop a plan of action to achieve desired outcomes. As evidenced by the vast amount of documentation that's accompanied this report, there's been a great deal of thoughtful planning taking place this year. Tonight, we're going to address three specific action items. Teacher planning and collaboration time, the 3.22 study addresses that. The 2020 strategic uh, uh, planning bond issue and professional development. The study phase for these three topics is now complete. And we're prepared to make some specific recommendations regarding each topic. It's important to note that as a board, you're not being asked to vote on any of these tonight. Instead, you have an opportunity in this presentation to get a 30,000 foot view of these topics and then ask questions that either stay at a big picture level or go closer to the ground is your choice. But I will at this point now begin to move through uh, not only the, the, uh, the big picture of what the study yielded, and I'm not going to go into studies, just the big picture of where we're at and also the recommendations. Next slide, please. At the last Board of Education meeting, you saw this information as part of the operating budget presentation. Through the budget development and strategic plan process, these items have been discussed as possible items to consider adding to future budgets. One of these items, the Director of Professional Development, is a position that we plan to address in the 21-22 school year. This is funded with federal money, with federal Title II money. You have supporting documentation on that position. That position is going to help us connect the dots of professional development across the district and directly support all staff and work that supports student learning on the three objectives. So again, no action needed. That's part of our Title II funds. Fortunately, we can use Title II funds for that purpose, and we don't have to use operating funds to uh, add this much needed position. Another uh, item, the BIS recovery room, is Title I eligible. And we're currently evaluating ways to support at least some of our title schools, uh, even this school year, in addressing that need. 
there's more work to be done on the actual design, but that's one to be aware of that we may be able to meet some of those needs this year. As a reminder of the items, uh, and let me just go back to this for a second, that, that comes out of Title I, again, federally funded. Now, federal funds are great. They fund these, uh, these needs, but if the federal funds go away, unfortunately, so too does our way of funding those, those, uh, those needs. Now, as for the remainder of the items requested for consideration, one of them, reducing workload for secondary teachers, is addressed in this presentation. The other topics are going to require further study and the development of a fiscally responsible plan to consider the extent to which we can fund them. While we are receiving uh, new revenue from state over the from uh, from the state over the next three years. We recognize that new revenue will have to address increased operating costs, salary and benefit increases, and honestly, any new positions that we want to add. And that puts a lot of stress on those limited resources. And we'll continue to update the board on data and processes that lead to any future action on one or more of these items. I might add too on the one on class size, I think the, the enrollment study that we just completed is going to help with that. And we'll be providing you with more information at a later meeting on class size because uh, that's, a, that's an interesting topic. That's a, that's a topic of great interest to people. So we'll provide more information later on on that. Next slide, please. Well, in considering all staffing decisions, it is important to continually remind ourselves that the operating fund is the primary source for salary and benefits, along with lots of the daily operating expenses necessary to run a school district. We are highly dependent on the state of Kansas for money that comes from this fund. It is equally important to remember that prudent management of this fund is critical to write paychecks and pay bills. Maintaining minimum fund balances is essential to good business practice. And by the way, when I talk about minimum fund balances, I, I want to underscore minimum. It would be ideal to have more than 8.3% minimum fund balances. It would be prudent to do so. What we're saying is don't go below this because surprises like pandemics or shortfalls in state funding happen. Sometimes you can anticipate them. Other times you can't. Any good business practice involves making sure that you have a plan in place to make sure that you can meet payroll and pay your bills with some reasonable level of predictability. So that's why I'm recommending a board policy that provides a guardrail of a minimum of 8.3% balances or one month's payroll. Actually, it's one month expenses, apologize. That's the absolute minimum that we should have on balance. So uh, that's something to remember as we go through the rest of this report. Next slide, please. Another recommendation that I'm making tonight is that we address secondary workload. This issue has been under study this past year. You know, we said last year when we adopted the strategic plan that we need to get a, a group to get together to study uh, this very important issue for our teachers. 
And that was done, and they did a great job. That study is attached for your review. The recommend the, the, the study, uh, the recommendation that I have for you is consistent with the study, uh, which directly supports our efforts to work uh, with every middle school and high school student to make sure that they have the adults around surrounding them that they need to be successful in their learning. Now, in the course of putting together this recommendation, I do want to reference the study a little bit. One of the things that the study talks about is starting that process this coming school year. By the time we got the study, the peak of a hiring season was well past. We also need time, as you'll see later in this report, we need time to plan to make sure that we have a good, sustainable funding model. And so what I did is I took the essence of that report, the goal of that, of that study, and uh, took what was originally a three-year timeline in that study, and I turned it into a two-year timeline, but instead of starting this school year, this coming school year, it will start in 21-22. That's, that's the one variance, but we get, uh, we get to the same place. I'll talk about that timeline here in a second. In doing, in doing a reduced workload for secondary teachers, the challenge has always been to find a way to fund reduced workload in ways that were fiscally sustainable. The, the approach that we are proposing uses the judicious and thoughtful strategy of moving up to 4.5 million of additional dollars in custodial salaries into capital outlay over a two-year period to ensure that we can fund this priority. This is on top of the 4.5 million in maintenance and a few custodial salaries that we already commit uh, out of uh, capital outlay and salaries. So we already moved $4.5 million into capital outlay and use that for maintenance and a few custodial salaries. This takes another 4.5 million to pay for custodial salaries. Now, the, this recommendation is based on the state meeting its court-ordered mandates to increase funding. Uh, it has to sit within the board's budget guidelines. It's critical that if this is going to work because of the impact on, uh, on capital outlay that we pass a bond issue in this coming year and keep passing bond issues in subsequent uh, years to make sure that we don't put too much stress on our capital outlay fund. With this recommendation also comes an understanding that we need to bring staff together in the months ahead uh, to take the 322 study and begin to do more specific planning uh, where around uh, this, this development of a two-year pathway to have, um, to have reduced workload for all of our secondary teachers. Uh, so, we're going to get a group together, and I'm going to have Dr. Sumner speak to that a little bit later when we get in a question and answer session. But it's, it's, it's important to understand that there's more work yet to be done. What this is saying is we have a financial pathway to get there with some guardrails that says if we can't get there in two years because of circumstances beyond our control, 
then we will work to develop a pathway there sooner rather than later, as quickly as we uh, reasonably and uh, in a fiscally responsible way can make it happen. And I think everybody understands we're into a, a period of uncertainty here with uh, what impact COVID-19 might have on state budgets. So there's no surprise that we've got some unknowns in front of us here. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, now, capital outlay has some very specific purposes. It's critical that we use a combination of bond and capital budgets to meet our facility technology and furniture needs. Over committing capital outlay to custodial maintenance salaries, in our case, uh, would mean that we would take the remaining $4.5 million and, and uh, move custodial salaries in, in, into a capital outlay. Here's the challenge. We do that, and we run a very real risk of not keeping up with our facilities, technology, furniture, and other needs that support learning. That's why I'm recommending that the board consider a, a policy or a hard cap of 25% of capital outlay being used for custodial and maintenance salaries. That's a good balance of making sure that we are getting our needs met and while and uh, using uh, both our capital outlay and our bond in the right ways to make sure that we are providing the learning supports that are needed. Uh, next slide, please. Um, you can see in this slide uh, the distribution of funds in our cap in our capital outlay budget. Currently, we have about 36% dedicated to routine maintenance. That needs to get to 40. Um, you can see where we have technology and tech leases, they remain the same. And then, of course, in our, we have our equipment furniture. We, that's a, essential to keep a percentage of that capital outlay allocated to that purpose because you can't do all that through, nor should you do all of it through bond issues. And then what you see on the bond payments is we are currently paying off Shawano, the Center for Academic Achievement, and uh, Operations and Maintenance Building. 29% of capital outlay is going to those purposes right now. Uh, this is an important point. This plan means that after those bonds are paid off, we're no longer going to be paying for any new facilities out of capital outlay. They will all have to be paid for through bonds, through bond issues. So we're going to have to really be thoughtful about how we meet our facility needs, including rebuilds going forward, because this plan takes away that uh, that ability for the board to use uh, to allocate capital outlay in that way. Now, this does involve some overage, some over some over expenses in the first in the next two years, but we have sufficient balances to cover those. And so there you go. There's your there's your pathway and capital outlay to get to a cap of 25 percent while also meeting current and future capital outlay needs. Next slide, please. Now, supporting our academic goals for learning requires the thoughtful use of every fund that we have available to us. In the case of our bond, of our bond funds, they are best used to address big ticket items such as HVAC, roofs, windows, parking lots, renovation, rebuilds, 
things that are known planned expenses. You know you have a life expectancy for an HVAC system. You know you're going to have ongoing maintenance and repair of that HVA system. Bonds replace it, capital outlay maintains it, and repairs it. And that is true across the board uh, in, the, in uh, these two items, capital outlay and, and bonds. So uh, what I've provided for you here and uh, the attachment is an overview of the bond issue items that we have identified for the next three bond issues. Really, we've identified $750 million of facility needs over the next two decades. The supporting document kind of lays out categorically uh, what that involves. It's critical for aging facilities to keep up with them. Once a school district gets behind, on aging facilities, they're in real trouble. Good long-range planning helps the community understand not only what's needed, but also what the anticipated cost will be. Now, in doing the analysis, uh, working with uh, Mr. Arbery, uh, and doing the analysis, we've created two options for the community to consider. Option A, which is attached for your review, is illustrated here. This involves a no taxing rate increase bond issue in the first issue, and then you can see the next two involve tax rate, incre tax rate increases. For purposes of moving through the big picture, uh, I'll happily uh, get into more specific detail about what's in those bond issues uh, in the question and answer period. Uh, if you wanna go to the next, uh, you can go to the next slide, please. Um, option B, which is also in our documentation, contains all of the projects of option A, uh, but we added more in from that total list of 750 million. And as you can see, it does require a tax rate increase in each of the three phases. Look, the challenge we face is you just can't get to all of these projects through the ongoing use of no tax rate increase bond issues as much as we would like to continue to do that nor can we use up to the 25% of capital outlay budget for custodial maintenance salaries and keep up with the ongoing maintenance, repair, technology, and furniture needs without having these big ticket items replaced, repaired on a predictable replacement schedule. That's what makes all this work. As noted earlier, you know, bonds are really the only source of funding for future rebuilds and renovations. We no longer have capital outlay to do rebuilds. All rebuilds have to come from bond uh, issues going forward under this plan. Next slide, please. Well, we recognize that a tax rate increase at any time is never popular. We also want to put this into these data into context. With either option A or option B, you can see that even after the third bond issue, remember, we're going 15 or more years out, probably more like 18 years out, 20. Even after the third bond issue, our total mill levy will still be lower than our Johnson County peers in today's, at today's mill rates. And as was shared earlier, the cost per year for a 4.25 mill increase is about $44 per $100,000 home value. But what it gets us 
is it keeps uh, aging facilities in great shape. It allows us to continue to do rebuilds, and those rebuilds have proven uh, important to ensuring that our community stays up to date with our facility needs. And it also, quite frankly, does a better job of meeting the needs of all of our children for their learning. So uh, with that, I want to just give you my, uh, my final uh, recommendation. If you go to the next slide, please. And that is that we conduct a, uh, a community survey uh, in June, July 2020. We're prepared to do that. And then based on the results, recommend either a no tax, I will recommend to you as a board, either a no tax rate increase bond issue or tax rate increase bond issue be placed on the ballot in either November of this year or in January of 21. Now, if we do a November date, just be aware, it would require approving a bond resolution, which includes a bond statement at the July 27th Board of Education meeting. So we have work to do. We're going to find out where our community is on uh, option A and option B. And here in July, I'll be bringing to you a recommendation that's based on feedback from our community. And with that, I believe that's the last slide. I'm open to questions. <clears throat> Before you do get any questions, I do want to add that uh, I have a whole team here that's prepared to respond to questions you may have. I'm going to stay big picture, but when we get into the nitty-gritty details, I'm going to hand it off to the team members who work with this every day. And with that, I turn it back to you, President Owsley. Okay, thank you, Dr. Fulton. Um, so I just want to highlight, I'm going to, I'm going to go first so I can highlight what I saw to be the main points because there was a lot of information there and I kind of want to just recap directly. We're not voting on anything tonight. We're getting feedback from our community. The earliest we would be voting on anything would be July 27th. Um, the primary takeaway being that this isn't just about district buildings. But this is also the avenue via which we can get to a workload adjustment to move to five out of seven. Um, because the bond initiative is the method that pre eases pressure on those capital outlay dollars, which allows us to fund custodial salaries with those, which frees up operational dollars. And then I heard that you've referenced that we would need two guardrails. The first would be to retain enough of the capital outlay budget for routine maintenance expenditures, which would mean not spending more than 25% of capital outlay. And then it would be important to maintain the minimum 8.3% um, in operational fund balances as the one month safe harbor in case of state budget cuts and in order to protect our bond rating. And then you have two options for us. The first option being a no tax rate increase bond initiative and the second option being a tax rate increase bond initiative, which would allow additional rebuilds to happen upfront. Is that a concise summary of what you just said? Did I miss a, a, a you, major point that I was supposed to get and I didn't get? <laughs> so you, can... you presented it much faster than I did. That was a great summary. Okay, thank you. I have, I can hear the children downstairs and I am just making sure <laughs> I've got everything. Okay, um, I will go through the list and we will ask the questions and people feel free to ask multiple um, and, and we can do as many as we need to do. Um, I'll start with Mr. Stratton since I forgot him earlier. Mr. Stratton, do you have any questions for this evening? Thank you. And you didn't forget me, but thank you anyway. <laughs> I almost. 
<laughs> Please, uh, go ahead. Two questions uh, sort of related. The first one's about taxing authority. Um, I'm asking this on behalf of myself, as well as this finance and facilities committee that we're generating these questions to convey back to the community. So really as a reminder, my question is, is our taxing authority is really in the general operating fund. We don't have any taxing authority. Those dollars are all determined and sent to us, provided to us by the state legislature, if I understand it right. As far as the capital outlay goes, it's it's locked in at eight mills that the legislature allows us to assess eight mills to raise generate funds for capital outlay. So the only place we really have is any additional opportunity to have taxing authority is in the bond is to go to the public and ask for their vote of approval to either you know stay at the same rate that we've been assessing or to, to increase it in, in scenario B. My question is, is that accurate? Meaning I'm watching other cities around us discuss whether they should raise their mills or go more into their reserves in order to make it through a tough time. We don't have that option, right? Because they have the option to raise their mills to generate more general operating funds. We don't. We're capped. Am I accurate on that? That is, that is correct. And Dr. Atha, why don't you take that away along with Mr. Hamm? Yeah, Russell, I'm going to ask you to fill in the gaps for me uh, here. But uh, back in 2015, the Shawnee Mission School District passed a resolution taking the LOB, the local option budget, up to 33%. And by doing that, that eliminated any flexibility that you had in, in, your, in your local and, and been able to generate local revenue. Uh, when you increase the mill levy on the capital outlay to eight mills, that also decreased flexibility. So, you know, um, you, you, you are exactly right uh, in that uh, we, we are capped in, uh, in being able to generate revenue and to be able to do capital projects like this, then it would result in us having to present a bond referendum to our community. But Russell, uh, fill in any gaps for me that I've left out. No, you hit them all, Dr. Atha. Uh, again, the, the real only option we have locally for school districts to raise money for capital projects is a bond referendum. So, Brad, you are correct. Okay. And then, so with that being known, those are the three ways that revenue is generated, of which only one of those we have the ability to adjust, and that's by going to the public and asking for a, a bond referendum. But then the other part is, is that uh, there's very pretty, there's pretty strict parameters on what it can be spent for as it relates to improvements to buildings and things, and Dr. Fulton did a good job of that. Again, I'm asking for clarification. So the only places we can go when it comes time to repair equipment, fix a building, rebuild a building, is gonna be in a bond, or in a capital outlay, and we can't go into general operating to do that. So there's a, a, a wall between those. I wanna make sure we're clear on that one. Yes, that's correct. Okay, well, well that helps me understand the decision that we're gonna be talking about here because um, we don't have a whole lot of flexibility as a school board to really generate additional funds outside what we just talked about. 
And so apart from getting uh, the pencil sharp, as Dr. Fulton and the team have done, this allows us to figure out where the laws allow us to have flexibility and try to take advantage of as best we can. I think the other part is, is the Shawnee Mission community has been very supportive of that decision-making process over the over the years. And that's why I asked those questions about assessed valuation to our bond council earlier, is because we also are very blessed that we have a very high assessed valuation in this community. And hopefully the decisions that we make here continue to enhance and improve that assessed valuation. With that, I'm done, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. Um, Dr. Sinclair, do you have any questions for this evening? Um, I do. Um... I actually have a lot, but I'm going to try to rein rein it um, myself in here at the moment. I want if I if, um, I would actually kind of like to start with an observation, if that's um, okay. Kind of leading up to my um, kind of big picture level question. Um, uh, just being familiar with educational research, change and uncertainty are two factors that really generate a lot of questions. And I would characterize Shawnee Mission has uh, really been living with this idea of change and uncertainty for a while now. And I would expect the list of questions from board members, from our, um, from our patrons and parents and staff that um, those lists of questions have only gotten longer in the past several months uh, in the face of a global pandemic that's um, affected people's lives and livelihood and you know, completely disrupted K-12 public education. Um, and as, as the nation has stopped and taken a hard look at systemic racial disparity following the killing of uh, George Floyd, um, and I think it's important to acknowledge that it can be challenging to hold on to so many questions, especially when it's not yet clear whether your concerns are, are, are in the queue yet or, or are on the table. And I know, Dr. Fulton, that you have been flooded with um, more questions, probably superintendents across the country have been flooded with more questions than, than I don't know, historically <laughs> ever in recent times anyway. So I just wanted to um, acknowledge that we all have a lot of questions and um, to the extent that we can at least, you know, continue to get them on the table. And um, I think that's um, kind of important to acknowledge. Um, Shawnee Mission, this community is facing critical issues to which you, Dr. Fulton, have brought a set of recommendations, kind of as you said you would, uh, guided by the strategic plan and the work of the strategic planning task force groups. Um, and along with that, kind of a stack of documents, reports, and analyses to help um, provide data to inform the recommendation. So again, while my inclination is to dig in and ask a lot of, um, ask a lot of questions, I wanna keep it at the macro level. So um, just at least to begin with here. The, so when we embarked on the strategic plan, you characterized we had three kind of three objectives of the strategic plan, describe the district's destination, the five strategies at the, as the roadmap. And we had, when we adopted that plan, I think we set a, an expectation to review and adjust our current budget and how that's being allocated to more closely align with those newly identified priorities. So 
while today's conversation or this recommendation might be heavy on <clears throat> bond issues, would you say that what you presented today really is that work of adjusting our budget to meet the newly identified priorities of strategy three, how we're gonna provide our educators with the capacity to fulfill the mission of the district to adjust that workload. Yeah, it absolutely does. You know, it reminds me of a, of a conversation in faculty advisory uh, earlier this, this fall. And the question of reduced workload came up. And I shared with them, it's a great conversation. I shared with them, you know, there's no philosophical opposition to reduced workload. I said that the challenge. And, and I added too, you know, I, I dealt with as a teacher myself. So I remember the difference between uh, having an additional plan period and not having one. It does make a difference. Mm -hmm. It will help us to achieve those three objectives and meet the needs of all learners in a, in a much better way. But the challenge that we faced is we didn't have a good sustainable uh, pathway to, uh, to pay for it. Because what we, what we don't want to do, and I think I've said this publicly on several occasions, what we don't want to do is to create a pathway for reducing workload that then, because of financial pressures down the road, we have to pull back on and change course again. I mean, this is important. It's important to teachers to reduce the workload. It's important to children for their learning. So if we're going to do this, let's do it once. Let's do it right. And then 10 years from now, let's be glad that we came up with a, with a pathway that was sustainable. Okay. So again, for clarification, the, um, the, the guardrails are about identifying how we make sure that this plan is successful in order to um, identify dollars this year, next year, and the following school year that could be put towards that reduction of secondary teacher workloads, for example. Um, so that we're looking for revenue across all of those three years to make sure we have that allocated and prioritized to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's right. That that twenty five percent guardrail, for example, on capital outlay is really critical. It's interesting. Uh, you you know when you notice that an air conditioner doesn't work is when it's really hot out, or or a furnace can't isn't repaired, and there's zero tolerance, rightfully so, for having uh, being putting yourself in a situation where you can't repair them because you didn't plan appropriately. In other words, you spent the money that should have gone to that purpose was spent on other things. And I feel, you know, the same way about technology. We've seen the importance and value of technology, not just devices, but a technology infrastructure to keep learning going. That's not gonna change. Well, uh, and I would, yeah, and I would imagine more planning time would provide that um, a little bit more bandwidth so that that tool could be, um, time could be allocated to maximizing the use of that tool and um, well, meeting those expectations, both of staff and students and parents. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly that's right. So, so all it's 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 all part of the same system, and the system is okay. interconnected. Okay. And so when we do this work, we have to make sure that the dots connect in a, uh, with a long-term view to what we want to achieve. So my one last question, if you could speak a little bit more about this community survey. So there's a, another piece of information. So that community survey would be focused on the facilities and how that learning plan would be best aligned with the teaching and learning needs of our students. That's right. The, the, facility are, needs right and the board has already approved that survey we did that earlier this year mm -hmm. uh that it is that survey will be done in a uh, in a scientific way meaning they'll 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 do a identify uh about 500 people mm -hmm. representative of our community and they will make sure that they have contact with at least 500 people and from that sampling you can get a really good idea of where our community sits with uh any potential future bond issue and i've been involved in these surveys for years <clears throat> the the folks that do this are real experts at understanding where the community is on these issues and uh and this group's going to do a great job of uh of helping us to get that information and then the key thing is, once you get the data, pay attention to it, because it's, it's going to be it's going to be within a reasonable margin margin of error, probably right on in terms of where our communities uh, sits with their feelings about a, a bond issue, whether it's a no tax rate increase or a tax rate increase. Okay, thank you. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Uh, Ms. Boardman, do you have any questions for this evening? I do. Yeah, thank you. So um, just a, a couple quick questions here. One may be a little more lengthy, actually. Um, if we go with option B, obviously, that is going to look like a tax increase. Um, so did I hear the numbers correctly that if we go with option B, there will be a $44? What, what was the increase on that? Let me just ask you. Sure. So let me go back to uh, go back to my notes here. We uh, if we go if we go with option B and Russ, I'm going to make sure that I get this right. If you you want to, fact, Russ, will you want to handle that one? Go. I found it. The uh, the total mill levies would go up about three point eight over the the three different referendums that are spread out over fifteen years. So. Per $100,000 of value, it's $44. Okay, that's what I had written down. Okay, so good, thank you. Um, so in the longer version of the strategic plan that you put into the um, agenda that anyone can look at, um, we it, it did address increasing the staff by 78.5 FTEs. So kind of in light of the board statement and as well as your statement, Dr. Fulton, um, regarding George Floyd and you know diversity, um, if we're hiring so many more FTEs, 
you know, and I appreciate the fact that, you know, we want to do this right and we want to take our time. And so along the lines of diversity, how are we going to get it right with hiring people of color? Um, I think it's wonderful that, you know, we go to universities and we target people, try to recruit people of color and those kinds of things. Um, but I think it would be great to add into our strategic plan or however it looks, uh, Dr. Fulton, um, some more specific measures of hiring and recruiting and promoting people of color to and within our district. Um, can you speak to that a little bit, please? Yeah, I'd be happy to. We're going to come back uh, in the fall and we're going to give you a little bit of an update on not only the processes that we're using uh, for recruitment, but we're going to come in with some data that I think is going to be enlightening. Uh, you know, part of the challenge that we face in education is that the vast majority of graduates of teacher education programs are white. In fact, predominantly white female, which is not surprising. The majority of our workforce in education is are, are white females. Uh, and that's true, not just in Kansas, but you'll see that around the country. You have a, uh, so we have in the Midwest and then probably countrywide, an, an issue with make, uh, of having enough candidates of color graduating from teacher education programs. We'll provide you with some data that'll, I think, be a little bit enlightening to that, to the best that we can collect that data um, in Kansas. I know I have the data from Missouri previously, and it's, it's, uh, it's disheartening to see how many, uh, to see how few uh, students of color, actually people of color actually graduating from teacher ed programs. So that's an issue that we're going to have to address. So you've got, you have two. One is you have a limited number of people graduating from programs. Two, you also, uh, you need to go out and aggressively recruit both locally, regionally, and nationally. And one of the challenges that you face, particularly when you go beyond your region, is most people like to stay close to home, so to speak. And unless there's a reason, a compelling reason to move to another part of the country, uh, they typically don't. So uh, we'll walk through all that with you. Now, none of that's an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's a reality. And it's a reality that every school district in Kansas and every school district in the Midwest that I know of faces. And so that's, that's, uh, that's something that we are working on and we'll have to continue to work on. It's also a reason why uh, we are working on Grow Your Own. Uh, you know, if you have uh, a more diverse student population, that's great. Diversity is our strength. But we need to be talking with our students about going into education as a career. And that's something that we're doing as, a, as an effective strategy. A lot of schools around the country have uh, started to move to because they just, they, they just can't uh, get the candidate pool uh, in the ways that they need it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and I appreciate that that's, you know, 
Absolutely. Thank you very much. And I know that there's acknowledgement that there's work to do and, and absolutely. Um, I, I would like to see some, you know, when you do present that in the fall or whenever that is, um, before we go and, and, you know, um, it would just be nice to show the community that, you know, some metrics that we're actually doing what we're saying, you know, um, and so I think by putting that into the strategic plan or something um, would be great. So as we try to move to, you know, the reduced teacher load and ramp up with our FTEs, I think having some metrics that we can show our community, hey, this is, you know, we're actually doing what we're saying would be, would be really great. Yeah, and we actually do have this in our strategic plan and I would, I'd like to invite Dr. Sumner to, to jump in and, and please, uh, Dr. Sumner, add to uh, or correct anything that I've said, because you're doing a great job with that. No, I would, I would really just reinforce a few of the key points that you've already made. Um, number one, this is a high priority issue for us, Jamie. Um, our efforts have been uh, growing over the course of time to make sure we're, we're supplying adequate effort to recruiting and securing hire of minority candidates. But Dr. Fulton's right. Uh, the number of available candidates in this region uh, is so low that it's difficult um, to add the volume that all of us would like to see to our workforce. And as a result of that, that's what's inspired us to take our recruiting efforts beyond our region and start to visit uh, over the last two years consistently these historically black colleges and universities where there is a higher higher rate of available candidates. Now that takes time. We have to build relationships. We have to um, bring people along to understand what our community has to offer, why we're a, uh, a good uh, place for them to consider transitioning to. And I think we're making a lot of um, advances in that area. But it also speaks to another point that was referenced with regard to the work of the 322 committee as to why the, the hiring initiative was better to delay for the 21-22 school year. Uh, we wanna make sure that we're hitting the peak hiring season. If we were to go out now with the green light to add even a fraction of the FTE that it would take to phase this workload, workload transition in, we would be hitting a hiring a season that is now significantly drained. And the the potential to find even two or three minority teaching candidates regionally right now would be al almost zero. So knowing that we have the opportunity to add significant volume to our workforce, if we can do it early in the hiring season, we enhance our chance to have a larger <coughs> candidates, which also increases our chance to see candidates um, of color. So we think strategically in this 322 initiative, it's a strength, but it also aligns, I think, with some of our other efforts. And, and there is within the strategic plan, uh, there is a, a specific item related to enhancing and reassessing um, our Grow Your Own program. And I, and I know that's work that's going to be initiated very quickly as well. I, I don't know if that helps at all, Jamie, but that's, that's kind of where we're at. I appreciate I might add, if I if I can, real quickly, uh, in that in that document, uh, uh, Ms. Bergman, that you re, that you referred to, if you go if you go to the second uh, strategy, 
strategy two, equitable and inclusive culture. We have under 2-2, two, two, it's called recruitment and hiring practices and procedures. Right. There are about uh, five or six very specific strategies or action steps under that strategy of recruitment and hiring practices and procedures that speak to uh, creating a more diverse workforce, whether that's recruitment, growing your own, or really also growing awareness of of the importance of diversity uh, in our culture and making sure that we have a workforce uh, that look that uh, to a great extent that over time we can we can grow this looks more like this. Those action steps are in that document. Uh, I, I know the students were uh, very uh, insightful, as were other members, of course, in, uh, in ensuring that that issue was addressed. So it's a great question. Well, thank you so much. Um, I look for you know further discussions on this, and I appreciate the commitment you know to making sure that we get it right. I mean, if I'm and not make any um, significant changes for this fall, um, just, you know, to your point, Dr. Fulton, let's take the time to get it right. And so um, I look forward to kind of seeing what that looks like, what getting it right really looks like, you know, so I appreciate that. And then my final question is, um, so is the bond um, tied directly? So is option B Option B, is that bond tied directly to reduce teacher workload? Or is it the community decides that option A may be the better choice um, for them? Would we still also address teacher workload? Yes, either option is a viable path. Okay, I wanted to make sure people understood that. So, yes. okay. great question. But there is a difference in the number of rebuilds. If people will go in and look at the options, I think there's seven elementary buildings per rebuild on option B and only hold on option A. So that's the main difference. It's it's pushing off um, the rebuilds from what I can tell. Yeah, it has in, in option B, we, we go from four rebuilds to six rebuilds and uh, we also can more aggressively take on some of those things like privacy and locker rooms and, and restrooms, uh, getting updates to our secondary schools, which, you know, the we rebuilding elementary school is one thing, but when we get into our secondary schools, that's we're going to have to subsequently deal with renovations there because we just can't afford to replace the entire facility. That Thank you. I appreciate money. it. Thank you, Jamie. Um, okay, Ms. Embry, do you have any questions for this evening? I do have a couple. I have some just focused on the moving teachers from six out of seven to five out of seven periods that they'll be teaching. Because there were a couple, I just want to, I'm very supportive of the move. I want to make sure we're going in with our eyes wide open. And one of the things that really stood out to me in the report is that 322 group put together with a couple of things that I think is just worth the community knowing up front. They identified a couple of downsides to the move, one of them around um, elective ability, availability for students, and one of them around teachers not having dedicated workspace. So I'm wondering if you could just talk briefly about what some of those practical downsides will be for parents and teachers. Yeah, there are some, some good kinds of challenges that have to be uh, addressed through this process. And, and that's why we're gonna bring groups of people together to do some problem solving around it. So, uh, Dr. Sumner, would you uh, and any of your team members 
like to help address that question? Sure. If, if we're talking in terms of space availability, um, honestly, I don't know that we can answer that question about room allocation and things like that. Right now, our focus will be, now that we are, are aware of the financial plans that are available to us, what we'd like to do right now is we'd like to reassemble first the 322 committee. And we'd like to share with them the parameters for moving forward with the application of the solution they've been so great at helping us design. Because what we have to do next is it's not just a matter of saying, hey, listen, we've got 30 FTE available to us to hire during this school year for the following school year. What we have to do right now is we have to more specifically define what it is we need. Not just what grade level we need a candidate to teach, not just what content area, but we're talking drilling down specifically to the endorsements that we need to see on those candidates' licenses. Because we need to know what courses they're going to be teaching, not just what department they'll be teaching it. So what we would do is we would take members of this committee, which includes building principals, classroom teachers, and we'd start to review and analyze enrollment data, um, student scheduling um, issues, and then start to define parameters for the course schedule, the building schedule, teaching schedule for the year we're hiring for. So I need to know, not only do you need two additional social studies teachers in your social studies department, I need to know what it is they're going to teach. It needs to be that specific because if they're gonna have an, AC, an AP prep, I need to go find somebody with that endorsement. If they're gonna be in the science content area, I need to know specifically what science course load they're gonna teach so that they have the right endorsements on their license. That's the specificity we have to get to. So once we know that, we're gonna move a lot of the internal parts around a little bit. And then we'll know exactly, are we transferring staff from one school who have an abundance of endorsements in an area we need and backfilling in that building? Eventually, I think you're right. You can't add this many people without probably having a space issue. Um, and, and I think that's more common now and probably not quite uh, the issue that it used to be given the technology we use uh, for classroom instruction. But that's going to all be part of the discussion that we're going to have teachers on this committee and beyond this committee help us work through. Um, does no good for me or Dr. Schumacher to apply a solution to that issue. We need to be talking with classroom teachers who can help us better understand their preferences and their priorities. And I particularly noted for the sake of parents out there who might be listening that um, for some of the really specialized electives, as you see teachers move from six periods to down to five, we won't hire a whole new teacher for that. It'll just mean that there's 25 to 30 fewer spots available for that elective. So some students, if they're really oversubscribed electives, will probably have a, diff a more difficult time accessing them. Is that accurate? Jessica, that could be a potential issue. One of the ways we can try to avoid that issue, because you're right, um, hiring a 0 0.2, 0 0.3 um, drama teacher or fine arts teacher of any kind uh, can be a challenge. But one of the things that other high schools are doing in our area in situations like that to try to open up as many opportunities for kids as possible is to work with those staff members in those departments and kind of look to see what type of interest they might have on continuing to teach successions with compensation to support that decision. Um, I, I think the solution we're looking at would never involve us requiring it. Uh, we would be looking for uh, a cooperative decision between the staff member and the building schedule that's designed. 
and then certainly compensate them if they were to choose to teach beyond the five sections. So we would, we would hope that in many cases that would be a solution we could apply to an issue like that. But, but I couldn't tell you with, without any possibility that uh, closing some sections may become a necessity at times. I might, I might add this, there'll be lots of questions like that. And that's why it's so important that the team uh, that that's, that principals and teachers and and um, and others get together and really take a look at the learning design in their school. I mean, we're we're engaged in this exciting regional work around real world learning. There are things that that high schools may want to do a little bit differently than what they've done done in the past. This is an opportunity for them to uh, take and create a little bit, and so uh, we don't want to pigeonhole schools into what might be possible because I, I have a lot of confidence in our staff and our principals what they know and, and our, our site councils I mean folks know what they need for their children and for learning and this is a great opportunity to do some innovation and then my other question is actually more focused on the, the bonding issue and I know that we have been working with a 750 million dollar budget of facility needs, and I'm just curious how we came, arrived at that figure. I know the strategic plan mentions that we want state-of-the-art facilities, but what does that mean and how much of that $750 million is um, deferred maintenance versus upgrades versus rebuild? Sure, great question. If you go to the, uh, the overall picture, the facility needs with the $750 million, uh, it lays out uh, how much is allocated for each category. So, for example, uh, over the course of that $750 million, we've allocated about $250 million of that for elementary rebuilds. Um, other big ticket items, high school, middle school renovations, $157 million. Um, I'll look at a few others here. Oh, roof, upgrades and replacement. Uh, 55 million. So we detail this overall sheet, but it gives you a really good understanding of where the money's going to uh, categorically. And some of these things, of course, are things you have to do. You want your roof not to leak, so that's good. But you've got to, you have to allocate money for those those kinds of uh, ongoing uh, ongoing updates. Does that did that answer your question? It does to some extent. I mean, I'm interested. I know we did community forums back in the fall. Did they inform what we put together in any way? You know, they absolutely did. We went out. We, we first of all, we had a facilities group that was part of strategic planning. Uh, they provided a report. And then based on that, with the anticipation that we might be going for a bond issue in January 2020, we did some additional work with our community this fall. We got feedback at those forums. And this... Uh, this documentation builds on that uh, on that work. I'd welcome Dr. Atha or Mr. Robinson to jump in and add anything to that that they would like to. Well, Mr. Robinson, you haven't had an opportunity to visit this evening, so uh, why don't you chime in on this, and then I'll try to fill any gaps that that I see. Okay, I'll be happy to. We we put this uh, a plan together with input from our strategic committee, our our principals, 
through through uh, capital requests, through uh, work orders. And, and a lot of this is data that we pulled together using architects and engineers. We evaluated our 10 oldest elementary schools. We evaluated our middle school and high school, and they actually used a, a, a uh, process that actually evaluated them, giving them a point system. So we really had a good feel for what, what was needed in each one of those sites. Our HVAC and roofs, you know, we keep, we keep data on those constantly. Um, roofs has got about a 15 year life expectancy. So is your HVAC. So you kind of look at when it was originally installed and you have a record of what, what's needed in the future. So that's kind of all that information kind of put together. And then we built these uh, spreadsheets to uh, outline it. Hopefully that I'd like answers. to reemphasize. <clears throat> Go ahead. I'd like to reemphasize uh, you're, you're initially getting four rebuilds of elementary schools in option A and six in option B. Um, and, and really that's the only, it's hard to find anything else new in construction in option A or option B. Most of it falls in the area of upgrades, replacement, along those lines of roofs, HVAC, lighting, windows, asphalt, furniture, restrooms, playgrounds, so on and so forth. So this is just primarily maintenance and uh, maintaining aged facilities that needs tender loving care. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, last year on the HVAC failing at Prairie, um, it required us to miss two days of school while we get two days of school at that school so we could get that HVAC up and running again. So this plan over the next 15, 20 years is really trying to look at these facility needs over the long haul and trying to be as, you know, trying to just maintain these age facilities. And I think as Dr. Fulton said earlier, we're not going to be building new high schools and new middle schools. So, you know, one, one thing that maybe helps put this in context too is if you go back to that slide on capital outlay and you look at our, our current uh, expenditures, you know, we have allocated, uh, we have allocated 29% of capital outlay to new facilities. So you figure what 30% of uh, around 36 million. If my math is right, you're probably talking about let's say around 10 million or so, just to be safe. Is that right? Somewhere in that neighborhood, nine million, 10 million. Um, it costs about 23 million to build a new elementary school. If you allocate nine million for three years, it gets you to. 27 million and those six schools times three gets 18 years. You could, you could, you could rebuild those six schools out of capital outlay over uh, these three bond issues. But then here's where you have to ask the question, is that more important or is it more important to address the issue of uh, addressing workload for secondary teachers 
so that we can get to our three objectives. And I think that's the hard part about this is it's all about taking a defined, uh, defined number of resources and just making some decisions about it. The reason we wanted to lay this thing out for the next 20 years was the decisions we make today, we're going to live with for decades. So we need to go in with our eyes wide open, recognize the different pathways we could take, and then at the end of the day, make sure that, that the pathway that we choose, the path we choose to go down is a right one for our students, for our staff, and for our community. I don't know if that helps or not, that, that background information. Thank you. Yep. No other questions from me. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Embry. Um, Ms. Goodburn, do you have any questions for this evening on this topic? Um, I do have a little bit of a uh, few questions. Dr. Sinclair asked the one about the community survey, and I'm interested in that. Um, um, before, when we had, I think it was Patron Insight do this, is that who we've hired again? Refresh my memory. Uh, yes, Patron Insight. Okay. Before they made sure, um, we, we made sure that they um, contacted people with their survey in very equal um, for all the different areas within the school district, all the different attendance areas equally. And so I think it was 500 participants, 100 from each, I believe, or uh, I believe I'm right. Is that correct, Dr. Fulton? Will they do that again? They will, and we just had that conversation with them. You know, you, you only need about 400 or so to get a uh, to get a valid sample size, but they have intentionally uh, gone to 500 so that we could do a, uh, a di an equal distribution across the five uh, high school attendance areas. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think answers will be different from the different from the different areas for this to the survey questions. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about really quick was just the fact that we're talking about these three different bond elections, I guess, bond, the three different ones, but actually we'll only be voting on one. If we decide to do that, we'd only be voting on the first one. It'll be, it's not like a package deal. I just want to make sure everybody knows that, that they have to all be voted on separately five years apart or seven years apart or whatever. I want to make sure everyone understands that that we would just be putting the one, the first one on the ballot, either, either in November or January. That is exactly right. They're only voting on one of the two options and we they will only be voting on one. And right. I'll recommend to you either option A or option B. Depending on what, what uh, you hear from the community in the survey. That's right. On their appetite for taking a, um, a tax increase or a no tax increase. That's exactly right. We, we felt like this was such an important decision with lasting impact that it was only right that the community go into this with their eyes wide open. Right, and I remember it's a different time period now. The last time we did this, I think, was about 2014, maybe 2014. And at the time, the survey said that we, the community would take a tax increase, but we decided not to do a tax increase bond at that point in 2015, but the community survey came back saying that we could have, if we, if uh, they thought we could have anyway. That so, is, that is exactly right. I looked at that data and that's, that's what it said. Right now, and how we the decision between November and January, because one would be an in-person, I suppose, in a November election, 
And the other would be, I suppose, a mail-in ballot in January because there is no election scheduled. So it would be a mail-in. How will you, how will you make that decision or recommend to the board? <laughs> well, uh, from, really, from data, we'll take a look at. Uh, we're going to we're going to integrate that into our survey. Okay. Kind of take a look at what the survey results are. Um, sometimes when you get those surveys back, people have questions. You're in a pretty good place, but you might need more time to build understanding of the bond issue, that would tend to push you toward a January date. Mm -hmm. uh, other times the data come back pretty clear. If it comes back clear in a positive direction, then uh, November might be a real possibility. Uh, if it comes back and you, you seem to be lacking, then you have got to really start, you know, to develop a plan to work with your community to build understanding, to make sure that before you even go out and ask uh, for a bond issue that the that there's support for it. Right. And I remember too, there's a, cost, there's a cost associated with holding these elections. In November, we would split the cost, obviously, with a bunch of different people. In January, if we did our own mail and ballot, it would be all on our, our shoulders, correct? That's exactly right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. In fact, I don't believe there is a cost in November. Dr. Okay. Aiken, is that accurate? That is correct. So no cost in November, but then we would have to shoulder the cost of a mail and ballot in January if we did that. Good. Correct. So that's all part of the decision making. Okay. Yep. Presumably, there'd be greater turnout in November. Yeah, and 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 honestly, from a from a planning standpoint, I know Dr. Sumner always appreciates this. Is uh, really recruitment season is heats up the end of October, November. There's advantages to going out in November because then you've got some certainty on what's going to happen with that bond issue. But again. Uh, I'll let the data lead the way on this. Right. So a lot goes into that decision. Oh, yeah. A lot of different factors go into that. So I didn't even think about the hiring season going on into that decision as well. Yeah. So, and so I when, I, when I bring the data to you and we look at it uh, and then I make my recommendation, I'll, I'll kind of talk about the rationale as to why I'm making a recommendation of A or B. And then we'll, we'll see where the data takes us. And when we do the survey, do you, I mean, I remember it, it was a long process to figure out the questions that we actually asked people in these surveys, but um, will we, will we put the whole thing out to them and say, this is all part of a, you know, a big plan, or are we just asking specifically for this, the first part of A and B? Well, the good thing about uh, these surveys is particularly if you're going with the same company, which we are, is there are questions from the previous survey that are still relevant. And it's good to keep asking those questions. A lot of those are perceptual, perception uh, questions related to how do people feel about their school district. So those are, those are uh, constants. Um, and then you're, you could then look at how people responded at the previous survey versus the current survey. Um, and then, of course, other questions are customized to the particular issue that you're dealing with at that moment. We've already gone through and met with the company. We have a draft survey put together and ready to go. Actually, we were working on that uh, quite a while ago. We will, after tonight, fine tune it some more before it finally goes out at the end of June. Beginning of July. Super. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Skipper. And Reverend Guy, um, would you like to close up with questions for us this evening? 
I think most of my questions have been asked and answered already. Um, I just want to say a special thank you to Dr. Fulton and to everyone who worked on this. I really feel like you have threaded a needle that felt like it was impossible. And just sitting here listening to this um, presentation and all the questions and all the answers, um, I'm feeling very grateful because I know over the last year there was tremendous pressure put on all of us to just make this decision to move to five sections without having a plan of how we were going to pay for it long term. And you have put in just an enormous amount of work to show us a path to do it in a way that is responsible. And I think that's the best way we care for our teachers and we care for our students and we care for all of our all of our employees, all of our community. Um, so I'm just, I'm very grateful. And I just wanna say thank you because I know this was a tremendous amount of work, but to me, it is a path forward that that we can build on as a district. And so that's my only comment. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Reverend Guy. Um, I see Mary with her hand up. So maybe that was not our final question for Amy. <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitant to add anything to that um, beautiful wrap up. Uh, Reverend Guy, uh, I I do want I the conversation generated just a few additional questions if that's okay. The community survey um, is there the capacity to to um, uh, provide that in Spanish for those families of ours who speak Spanish as their primary language? Um, or is that something we can find question. out? That's a great question. I have to ask now the survey. The scientific part of this survey is a phone survey, but there will also be an online survey that those that are not that's you know that's limited to 500 people that uh, folks can also fill out online. That's used as kind of backup documentation. So um, I'll check. We do virtually everything we do is usually in mm -hmm. as well. So I'll, I'll see what I'll see what's possible. Can I ask a brief clarifying question, Dr. Fulton? This community survey, I'm thinking of it as something similar to a public opinion survey that will just, the 500 people will be randomly selected of kind of likely voters within our community to give us a sense of where this issue would stand were it to be on the ballot in November or January. It's not, community survey I think makes, it, it sounds like it's very much about the Shawnee Mission parents and families, but it's actually more of a public opinion survey of the broader community of that's yeah, that's that is exactly right. So again, there's two parts. There's there's the first part that absolutely is a as a as a randomized sampling of our community. That's this that's the scientific part of it. That's that gives you the absolute best data, no hands down, in terms of where uh, the community as a whole stands on on these issues. And then there's a there's a second piece of this though that they'll also do that will uh, where people can go out and and uh, respond to a general survey, but it's that first part that really yields the best data on where the community really stands on these issues. So thank you for, thank you for clarifying that. That's, that's a good point. Then Mary, did you have another follow-up? Yeah, it's kind of one more, it's kind of a one-off on the bond um, questions that um, were raised. Uh, it's in regard to the 
early childhood center um, that um, our, our that program has moved to a couple of different facilities in the last couple of I don't know years and it seems to have found a home in Broadmoor so by um, looking at some of uh, the renovations and the bond to better meet the needs we are we're trying to transform a middle school into an early childhood center but that to me speaks to a commitment to actually keeping that early childhood center at Broadmoor and making that kind of our place or is that um, that is an accurate that is an accurate read of the document that's that's true okay hence the renovations because middle school bathrooms don't work well with early childhood okay <laughs> age children so <laughs> yeah okay i'm not seeing any further raised hands um i think we can wrap up the discussion on this item no one is interrupting me to tell me that we can't so i'm going to no mary that wasn't necessarily that wasn't you i'm just making sure i'm not missing anybody here but <laughs> um all right so we're going to move on to our consent items for this evening, item 4.1, approval of the consent items. I'm going to seek a motion for that. Move approval, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. And then I will seek a second. Second, Ms. Henry. Thank you, Ms. Henry. And all those in favor, please say aye. Aye. Are there any opposed? Okay, hearing none, that passes unanimously. And we'll move down to our action items. We're familiar with 5.1, but Ms. Goodburn can give us a Quick review after I get the motion in the second. So I'll seek a motion to approve 5.1, the policy for the duty to report criminal offenses. I will approve approval. Goodburn? Sorry. Second. I, I did hear Ms. Goodburn, so I'll go with Ms. Goodburn and I'll take uh, second. Is that Mr. Stratton for the second? Yes, second. Great. And then do you just want to remind us really quick what this is, Ms. Goodburn, before we vote? Well, this is the second reading, and I didn't hear anything from uh, Dr. Fulton or anything that anyone had any questions over it. But again, this was recommended by the superintendent and staff that we adopt this policy. It's a brand new policy. I will. I will add this. I did have a a good conversation uh, with Linda Seek on this. Just talking about we did, there's there's some things we don't want to have as a unintended consequences. But I think we I think we're okay with the language that we have. So. Um, that was that was the only feedback that uh, Linda and I had a chance to talk about a little bit. But. Thank you. Okay, well, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Okay, hearing none, that passes unanimously. Moving on to 5.2, same situation. Um, this is the second reading. I'll seek a motion in a second and have Ms. Gifford speak to it. So do we have a motion to approve item 5.2? I'll move approval, Sinclair. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Do we have a second? Second, have a brief. Thank you, Ms. Henry. Uh, Ms. Govern, do you want to just ref refresh our memories on this one? Again, th this one was uh, KASB recommended language, but there was uh, a few changes to it. Um, and instead of just a small amount, it was a bigger amount. So we decided to do a second read on it. That's really the only reason we did a second read. And again, I didn't hear from anyone or from Dr. Fulton on this one. So it's uh, recommended for approval. Great. Thank you so much. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? Okay, hearing none, that passes unanimously. And then moving on to 5.3, approval to purchase general lines of insurance. We'll get the motion in the second, and then Dr. Fulton can speak to this one. So I'll seek the motion to approve. So moved, Goodburn. 
think I heard Ms. Goodburn on that one. And then the second. I'll second, Claire. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. And then Dr. Fulton, do you want to just speak really quick to this? I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Atha for a brief overview. Okay, thank you. And I believe Mr. Okay. Actually. Go ahead. Okay, uh, each year about this time, we recommend the purchase of the district's general uh, line of insurance coverage to include property and liability coverage. Uh, we are recommending approval of premiums and fees at a cost of $962,679 for the 2021 school year. Premiums will be paid from operations, workers' compensation, and special liability funds. This evening, Russell Knapp, Tom McGuire from CBiz, and I are happy to address any questions you may have. Um, I can see everyone's picture for the first time in the meeting, so I'll just ask, does anybody have any questions on this item? Okay, I'm not seeing any hands raised, just uh, looks like we're ready to vote. So all those in favor, please say aye. Aye. Um, are there any opposed? All right, hearing none, that is unanimous. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Um, that brings us to the close of the meeting this evening with board comments. Uh, I will just go through again. Uh, Reverend Guy, do you have any comments for us this evening to close out the meeting? Um, I, I know from social media that uh, many of our students, former students, teachers, employees, have been involved in um, some of the peaceful protests. And I just want to applaud everyone who's using their voices um, and helping amplify others' voices to uh, promote equity and equality in, in our society. So I want to say thank you to everybody who's um, been a part of all of that. And um, do remind people that voting is another way we make change. and. Um, it is possible this year to get a written ballot, a mail-in ballot, and with the uncertainty of what COVID might be doing when it's time for elections, I encourage people to look into getting a write-in ballot and a mail-in ballot this year um, to make sure that they are able to vote no matter what COVID might be doing around election day. And that's all for me. Thank you, Reverend Guy. Um, Ms. Hembry, do you have any closing remarks for us this evening? Uh, yeah, I do. I have been thinking a lot over the last two weeks. It was two weeks ago today that George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis by a police officer. And I personally have found myself thinking a lot over the last two weeks about the difference between fault and responsibility. Um, I feel like the word fault implies causality. It implies that someone has created some kind of problem. And responsibility is about choosing to deal with a problem regardless of where it came from. So I've been thinking a lot about what that means for us as school board members, um, as individuals. Um, I know I'm not at fault for the history of slavery and oppression we have in our country, but I do feel like I take some sense of responsibility for building a more racially just society. I'm not at fault for George Floyd's death, but I'm responsible for playing a part in preventing further police brutality. I am not at fault for black students in Shawnee Mission being suspended at three times their white counterparts, but I take responsibility for making it better. So I want to speak specifically just to black families and teachers in Shawnee Mission and let them know that I'm listening and I hear them. Um, I'm taking responsibility for making progress towards educational equity. 
I know it's an exhausting road to keep hoeing, but I applaud everyone for continuing to lift up their voices even when it gets exhausting. So please know that I'm listening and I'm at least here ready, ready to act. Thank you. Um, Dr. Oh, Mr. Stratton, do you have closing comments for us this evening? Sure, um, and the comments that were already made by board members were, were wonderfully said, and um, I'll just add a little bit to it. I too have uh, watched the events play out and uh, have wondered to myself, what can I do? What, what can I do to help? And I've given that a lot of thought and I decided, well, I sit in this chair and I guess this chair is one of privilege. And it's a privilege in a lot of respects, but one of them is simply the privilege of incumbency. I look at how I went forward and was reelected to this seat in a seat of leadership in our community and got to thinking, why didn't anybody else even come forward and run? Maybe because it's the privilege of incumbency. So I'm here to share with my board members that I don't plan to run again for this seat. The idea behind me saying that now, three years out, is to let folks know that this will be a seat that we can hopefully have a whole list of really good candidates to run. And my, because it's three years ago, like this week, that the next person sitting in this seat to run for this in three years would have to file. And sometimes it takes a little longer than just a few weeks to decide to run. So my challenge to myself is to help mentor my successor. And that's what I look to do. Hopefully, my way to help. We as Shawnee Mission are over one third now students of color, and many, many ethnic diversities. And my hope is that our board will reflect that at some point. And if I have the opportunity to do that, then I'd like to do that. So I'm announcing my board that I'm not gonna run again. It's another three years out, so that's a long ways away. But my point is to do something between now and then and begin to mentor my successor. If there's anybody else in this broad elected community that wants to do the same, I'm glad to help work with uh, various political action groups, chambers of commerce and all the like to broaden the pool of people who step forward to elected office. Hopefully that's my little way of helping. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm not sure how we move on from that one. <laughs> um, we've had some good comments so far. So uh, Ms. Borkman, do you have some closing remarks for us this evening? Yeah, that was, I, I I have a couple shout outs and I think um, my first shout out is to the Board of Education. Um, I'm grateful to serve alongside every one of you. I'm grateful that for the United um, statement that was made um, and I, I just appreciate the brave conversations. So um, I want to give a shout out to the Vice President of the Black Student Union at Shawnee Mission Northwest. Her name is Emma Kile. She happens to be my daughter Piper's best friend. And she spoke out in a very about the death of George Floyd. Um, and her speech moved me to tears. Um, and I thank her for the courage to speak up and to all of the black students who have spoken up and continue to speak up. I can only hope that this time we're actually listening. And I want every person of color to know, every student of color to know that I stand with you.
Thank you, Ms. Bergman. Um, Dr. Sinclair, do you have some wrap up remarks for us this evening? Uh, I'll just add to that. Uh, I wanted to um, thank the work of Dr. Bolton and the team of folks um, at the administrative level on all of the strategic planning task force groups for all the work that went into helping Shawnee Mission move, give us a plan and a path to consider for moving forward along our strategic plan and um, not only providing facilities that create a, a welcoming, engaging learning environment, but for creating um, a pathway for our teachers to have the bandwidth to meet the and accomplish the mission of our district, um, uh, which um, includes kind of and is critical in providing um, an inclusive culture. Um, I, the second piece I just wanted to um, call attention to Shawnee Mission East um, has a the Shawnee Mission East Race Project KC um, this Wednesday, June 10th, um, to meet at East at six o'clock and march in silence to the village shops for a program um, from some of our students. So I just wanted to put that out there as well. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Ms. Goodburn, do you have some final remarks for this evening? Just really quick, I appreciate the leadership of the board in um, in helping to craft the board statement and appreciate all the board's help in, in helping to um, put out that board statement. So that was great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So it looks like I have the final remarks for this evening. And so I'm just going to end tonight's meeting with Black Lives Matter. Have a good evening, everyone. <laughs>